Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. I'm just ecstatic to say that we have finally, finally, got a bit of snow here in Ottawa, Canada, the the national capital region. Uh, winter has seems to have arrived. I'm not 100% sure if it'll stay, but it's looking that way. I think this this weekend it's calling for, I think, 20 or 30 centimeters of snow. So that'll be epic. It'll get some, some snow on those trails, get it packed down and get that fat bike out. So really stoked about that. Um, it's been a weird winter. Um, usually snow starts in November and doesn't really go away too much from there, but we had snow for a few days, maybe three to five days, and then it just disappeared and it got super warm out and it all melted and rain melted it off and everything. And now there's really, really kind of nothing out there, except now there is because we got about eight centimeters or so uh, yesterday. Yeah, so on that note, if you don't have a fat bike yet and you are thinking about getting a fat bike, you can go to the Panorama Cycles website. They are offering listeners a 15% discount by using the code BPA15. And that's on the 2023 Panorama Shake Shocks. So that's the carbon fiber fat bike, which is a sweet, sweet bike. I'm not going to go too far into details about it. Check it out. You'll see. Other news. I have a huge a huge announcement to make. I've just announced it on Instagram a couple days ago, a few days ago on the weekend. And that is the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit. So this will be the first bikepacking summit uh, east of the Rocky Mountains. If that's correct, I think the bikepacking summit in Montana, I believe that goes to the Rocky Mountains, but it might not be. So anyways, it's the, the, <laughs> the most eastern one in Canada ever. Anyways. Uh, it's going to be held on the weekend of June 3rd and 4th, 2023, obviously next year. And yeah, I'm super stoked. I've been thinking on this for something like a year, a year and a half, maybe even two years. It's been in my mind and I've hummed and hawed about it, discussed it with my wife, never really talked to too many friends about it. And then maybe about a year ago, I, I brought it up in conversation with a few different people that I thought it would be, you know, that I would get some input from and kind of just run the idea past them, see what they thought, and finally decided to just go with it. I think uh, COVID, three years of it, has 
A, grown the cycling industry massively to the point where there's so many new people that are just, you know, they're just filled with questions and decided that why not have a summit? A, it, it will be filled with people that have experience and can answer those questions, but B, it'll be an amazing time to to just get together with other like-minded people that want to, ex, you know, explore more on bikes. So, yeah, putting it together. It'll obviously be here in Chelsea, Quebec. Uh, that's the, the location of the event. So if you're coming from out of the country, uh, you can expect to fly into Ottawa. Obviously, the tickets are not yet for sale. I'm just setting up the website for Canadian Shield Bikepacking. And as soon as that is up, I'll give some notice so that, you know, listeners of the podcast are well aware of when that is happening. So if they, in the event that you do decide you want to come, you have just as much opportunity and chance as anybody else to, to get a ticket. Cause I'm sure they, they're going to go fast is my guess, but who knows? Yeah. So I'm not going to like announce and say tickets are live on Instagram. And then two weeks later, tell you guys on the podcast. So I'll make sure that it all happens at the same time. And uh, yeah, that, that is my commitment to that because everything I've accomplished in the community with regards to cycling all started from this podcast so i definitely would love to meet some more listeners so anyways yeah stay tuned for more on that uh patreon no new patreon supporters this week please if you're out there and you have a few bucks to spare and you like this podcast and you're like man chris is doing a lot and he's working hard for the cycling community i I encourage you to consider um supporting me supporting all these endeavors through Patreon or PayPal. That's also cool. I like that. Uh, so you can do that at patreon.com slash bike pack adventures. I have changed names. So it is patreon.com slash bike pack adventures now. And yeah, even ahead of time, thank you for helping me keep this going. And of course, thank you to those that are already supporting me. I really appreciate it. I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I appreciate it. With the rebrand, I still have bike tour adventures merchandise on the social media anyways instagram and facebook uh it's not showing up on the website because i read i switched everything over from one website to another so that's right now the store is empty but if you do like the the original logo more with bike tour adventures feel free get a shirt get a hat and uh of course take a picture tag me love to see you guys with that on and let's jump into this week's episode in this episode of the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, I share a conversation I had with Jean Villeneuve, an Ottawa-based cyclist that I've slowly got to know over the past few years since moving back to Canada. Surprisingly, due to our busy lives, this is the first time Jean and I have had the opportunity to sit back and talk one-on-one. As a lifelong cyclist, Jean shares his views on environmentalism, the cycling community, and of course, his own personal journey from a more traditional road cyclist and mountain biker to delving into the world of gravel biking, bikepacking, and cyclocross. Although this conversation is a little different than most of my podcasts, I hope you enjoy the simplicity of it and the sharing of a journey. Thanks, Jean, for being on the show. All right. I just want to start off by uh, welcoming uh, Jean Villeneuve to, uh, to my house and welcome to the podcast. That's great. It's great to be here. So Jean and I, we, we don't go back super, well, we've known each other or of each other for quite some time now. You might hear some clinking because we're drinking. Um <laughs> But we've known each other slash of each other for quite some time, but we've only ever met like a couple times in person, usually at coffee outsides. 
And that's kind of been it. We haven't actually got out biking together. No, yet. we haven't yet. But I feel like I know you from your podcasts and from just your community work and your contribution to the cycling community and all the stuff you do to just promote bike packing yeah, and cycling. A- and you're so prominent online. And so I feel like I have a sense for, for you, but at the same time. I think this is probably the first real sit down chat. This is the first time we're going to have a chance to really talk. Yeah. yeah. And like usually it's like a series of text messages. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm on my bike. I'll text you later. <laughs> so yeah. why don't we just like get a, get to know you a bit better as a person? Like, okay. who are you? Where did you grow up? Like, tell us your, your backstory. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm an Ottawa boy, um, born and raised in the Ottawa area, uh, but haven't lived here my entire year. That's for my my entire life. Um, So, yeah, my mom and dad both raised in the area. My mom moved around a lot when she was a kid. Uh, They met really young. Like, my mother, I think, was 17 uh, when she met my dad. Oh, okay. And I think she had my brother two days after she turned 18. And then my sister two years later, then me two years later. So she was, like, 22 (laughs) and, like, three kids. So... Yeah, my family was really chaotic. I mean, I can't imagine what my parents must have gone through having three kids and being so young. In this day and age, people would be like pulling their hair out going, what (laughs) kind of life choices are being made? Exactly, right. It's just, it's insane to think like, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, what parents went through, what they did, and they started family so early. But yeah, we moved around a lot. It's funny, Um, my parents knew each other six months before they got married, you know? That was it. Yeah, I think think my parents probably knew each other maybe about that much time too. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so born and raised here in Ottawa. um, You know, but haven't lived here my entire life. Okay. Um, I had an opportunity to live in Europe twice with my career. Oh, nice. So once from 2000 to 2006, I was in Paris. Okay. And uh, and then the second time, I moved back to Paris again in 2014. Oh, no then way. I came back in 2007. And what were you doing? What was your career back then? Um, so I've mostly been in high tech. Okay. Um, that's a good thing about being in Ottawa. Is that yeah. Ottawa's got all city. sorts of different technology firms. Well, I got really lucky at a university um, and got a job at Cognos, which is a local high tech company. It was a darling of the of the area, mostly okay. software, though. whereas the rest of the high tech in Ottawa was mostly telecommunications mm-hmm. and hardware. Um, so I ended up working for them for five years and went to a startup that got acquired by Cognos's number one competitor named Business Objects. Okay. And they're headquartered in Paris, France. So they moved the team to Paris. And that's how I got to move to Paris. Nice. Yeah. And But you already spoke French, right? You're yeah, French I spoke Canadian French. I, I mean, I'm French-Canadian, but... Franco-Ontarian, let's get it right. Huh? Yeah, Franco-Ontarian. So, but but when I moved to France the first time, I realized that, yeah, I'm not, I don't mean, I'm about to say I don't mean to insult any French Canadians, but a lot of French Canadians, when they go to France, they, they speak French and the French people will respond to them in English mm-hmm. because they think that you're trying to speak French. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to change my accent to be accepted. And then and now you get looked at like your snobby French exactly, speaker. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. So now when I'm in Canada speaking to people in French, I'm like, oh, well, you feel like some sort of mid-Atlantic accent. It's like, yeah, I guess I do. But I have to. I remember going to France in like 2007, I think. I was traveling through Paris and wherever, lots of places. And yeah. people would just start like, oh my God, you're Quebecois. Your accent is so funny. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine who's French-Canadian. 
visited us in France, uh, I think 2015 or 16. And she was so insulted because she's like born and raised speaking French, going to French school her entire life, works in French, speaks to her husband and kids in French. And she's walking the streets of Paris, trying to get service in French, and everybody responds to her in English. Uh, so frustrating. Especially if she's like hardcore Quebecois. Oh, she's, yeah, well, she's hardcore Franco-Ontarienne. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, she's a wonderful, wonderful person. <laughs> that was just funny. But yeah, so, um, you know, I met my wife uh, in the late 1990s, uh, been, and then we, we ended up moving to France together in the early 2000s. We got married in Paris, which is fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. And then we... Well, but the civil or the legal ceremony was in France, and then the uh, then we ended up move, uh, sorry coming back to Canada just on a vacation to yeah. have the uh, paperwork done. You no, know, the ceremonial service. Oh, done. okay, gotcha. Yeah. No, actually, all of our paperwork. Oh, so is the still paperwork French. was done in France. Yeah, our legal marriage yeah, certificate yeah. is still French. So mine's completely the opposite. We did our ceremony in Iran, came here, and we literally got married wearing jeans and snow boots <laughs> at a church in Elliot Lake from a guy my mom knew on like Christmas Eve. He's like, yeah, yeah, I have time. Come on over. And he's like, and that was it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Just because we needed the paperwork. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then um, we ended up moving back to Canada in 2006. Were you we were, girls born in France? No, or? actually our first daughter was conceived in France, but born like six weeks after moving back. Okay. Canada. Um, it's better for them that way. Section. Yeah, actually, long term, it is better. From a technical, like a legal point of view. Yeah. yeah. Like one of the things that we didn't know, and this is just a quick sidebar, nothing to do with cycling, but if our daughter um, had been born in France, she would still get Canadian citizenship. But her but kids wouldn't unless they were born here in Canada. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I have that exact same situation with my first. Uh, I have a 10 year old son in Japan. Oh, okay. And that's the case. He was born in Malaysia. So he get he has a Canadian passport, but I mean, what are the chances he's going to marry a girl and they're going to say, "Oh, let's go have a baby in Canada"? You know, like he's in Japan, yeah. he's going to marry a Japanese girl probably, and where's she going to want to be? Around her family. So right. the citizenship's probably going to die with him. You know, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, if not at twenty two or twenty one when they have to decide anyway. So, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. good. It's good your kids were born here. It makes yeah. things easier. Yeah, and then um, yeah. So then two thousand six, when we moved back to Canada, ended up getting a job again with Cognos, and then Cognos got acquired by IBM. And then uh, at some point in my career with IBM, uh, they said, hey, would you like to move back to Europe and and uh, lead a sales team for us? And I did that and then did that for three years. And we ran into some visa issues uh-huh. at the end. It was a bit of a strange situation. Um, I won't get into the details. What's the but- quality of life like in France? I mean, I've heard it's great because like Wednesdays are half days oh, like, I've well, heard, like the, the theory is like every they're always on holiday they have so many that like holidays well, and annual leaves and like I mean I think for my kids and my wife it was a phenomenal um, quality of life okay you know my kids would have every six weeks they get two weeks off and they had long days of school except Wednesdays were half days for the kids and then every but there's a this massive economy built around this every six weeks there's a vacances uh, scolaire, which is like the, the school break and there's a huge economy built around it and what, what France does is they have like a roll like a rolling two-week break because there's so many kids and the ski resorts and uh, the campsites and everything they just like it's like a month long of like kids coming oh, sweet. and like the prices are super expensive during oh, that yeah. month 
And if you want to book something like the week after or the week before, it's dirt cheap uh, because nobody's there, right? Mm-hmm. And you go to the ski resort and you get the whole resort to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And Laura and I would do that a lot before the kids arrived because we'd kind of know the periods to avoid. Right. And we'd go for, like, go skiing. Dirt cheap holidays. Yeah, go skiing the Alps for a week, at, like, for 400 euros each. And... It's like Canadians here going in, like, April right. to Cancun or Dominican yeah. or something. You know, you get the dirt cheap holidays, but it's the time of the season where... Yeah. Man, exactly. Can I pause this for one sure. second? There you All go. right, we're back. Um, yeah, so you you spent some time in France, yeah, and yeah, I did. And uh, did you grow up as much of a cyclist? Were you big into well, cycling in the time in France, or was that yeah, of- it's interesting. Um, like for me, cycling was always this. Like, like I think if I look back at my childhood, I didn't think of it as an escape, mm-hmm. but it was an escape. Right? It's. Yeah. Uh, ever since I could remember being able to walk and ride a bike, I just absolutely loved like getting on my bike after school and just escaping. And back in the seventies, your know, parents didn't really care about where your kids were. At. Damn. How old are you, Gene? <laughs> <laughs> how old am I? Well, I'll be 52 soon. Oh, sorry. sorry. I'm opening the whiskey. <laughs> Go ahead. And so as long as I was back for dinner, my mom and dad didn't really care. And, I get on, like, get home from school, get on my bike, and just kind of go disappear into the ravine or into the woods or whatever. And I just always loved that escape and that explore, the adventure and the sense of exploration you got from being on two wheels. Um, And then later, when I was a teenager, uh, my parents are going through some rough times. My parents divorced, and um, like, you know, my mom didn't have a lot of money, so I needed a job. But the only way to get to the job was to get a bike. And by then, for some reason, I didn't have a bike. But I ended up buying like this really cheap super cycle from like Kmart or something. And just started using that to go to and from yeah. work. And I just like, continued falling in love with it because it was just something I enjoyed doing. And then there was this bike store um, on Celeron Boulevard called Sportable. And I think I was like 14 or 15 at the time. Is this still there? It's now full cycle. That's full cycle. Okay, I know where it yeah. is. Yeah, right by the Dairy Queen. That's where right. Dairy Queen was. Yeah, well, it's closed now. The, the, the reality is that that Sportable um, ended up becoming Cycle Logic because the right. owner know. bought it, uh, Mark LaFontaine, and then he sold it in the end to like Ian Fraser or something like that. Okay. So, but it's got an interesting history. And then Jamie Sunderland ended up saying, hey, there used to be a bike store here, and Jamie Sunderland oh. and I go way, way, way back, and he's one of the original founders of full cycle oh, so okay. he set up full cycle there anyway so so it was probably the mid 80s at that point and i ended up buying a norco touring bike uh, with all the money i was making at harvey's at the time um and then at some point i ended up having a bike accident i hit a car and i bent the front wheel and so i went in and i said well i don't have a lot of money to pay you guys to fix it but can you sell me a rim and then I'll just build the wheel myself. And here I am, like this 14, 15-year-old <laughs> guy, right? And the guy who owned the shop at the time is like, there's, there's no way you could do this, but I'll give it to you anyway. You know, and yeah. so I go home and I take the whole thing apart and I relace the wheel, put the new rim on, and I bring it back to him like a week later. I'm like, yeah, I just, I can't get the spokes tight enough. And he's like, oh my God, I can't believe you just like relaced the wheel. <laughs> You've never done this before. I had a spoke key. You did, yeah. okay. <laughs> I think they gave me one to do it, to make it easier. 
And he's like, do you want a job? <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. Hey, so, so then I ended up uh, becoming a bicycle mechanic um, from like the age of 15 until, geez, I think I worked at Sportable until maybe second year university. Oh, cool. And that's yeah. how I got sort of steeped into the cycling community in Ottawa and just fell in love with the I cycling I used to live community. literally like 100 meters from there. My oh, friend's wow. parents had an upholstery shop and I rented out there upstairs. Um it was a two-bedroom apartment, so I had rented that for like five hundred bucks a month. Like, was it just down Stoneware Boulevard? Like, yeah, like going towards walk. the RCMP, yeah. just after the intersection there of uh, Saint Laurent and what is it, Saint Patrick or whatever it is? Yeah, where the Dairy Queen was, right? Just after, like four or five houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Small world. Yeah. yeah, So yeah, so I got steeped into the cycling community, um, and I just it, it just it's always been a passion of mine. Um, endurance sports. I mean, I was never a great cyclist as a teenager. Uh, one of the things I discovered, not until kind of in my 40s, uh, but I was, um, I had like this failure to thrive thing as a teenager. Like I was like six feet, same height as I am now, but I was like 130 pounds. Yeah. So like now I'm 165. Gangly, uncoordinated, all the things yeah. going against you that like. But I didn't realize it. Like, and I still have this issue now. I've got this really bizarre, rare disease, but it's, um, but it's manageable with diet. And I didn't realize that for probably the first 40 years of my life, I was just not eating a diet that my body right. was happy with. So I'd gain weight, lose weight, gain weight, lose weight. And like how big a fluctuation are we talking? Like you're probably what, 190 now? No, I'm actually 165. Right no now. way. You're not that light. Yeah. You know, I'm like 195. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're 165. Holy crap. Yeah. I got really long. Thin He's wearing legs. a hoodie. So it's hard to tell. So. <laughs> yeah. So like 165 and, and six feet, but, um, <clears throat> well, just a hair under six feet. But yeah. So yeah, you should have been a pro racer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it. Like, like I, I trained really hard. And got really fit, but then I get really sick, right? And I or get really like exhausted. As it turns out, um, uh, they're really bizarre food. Like, like really, like, sorry, like, um, just it's a bizarre disease. It's called eosinophilic esophagitis, which is never heard of it. Basically, an allergic esophagus, an allergic intestinal system. Oh, okay. So it means that I'm I lose nutrients. I don't absorb nutrients unless I eat the right things. And is it like? Is there, with this disease, is it like, this is what you need to eat? Or it's like, you got to kind of figure it out as you go. Well, no, I figured it out probably not until my 40s, which is like a really long time. And what happens is that your esophagus or my esophagus would just get so allergic, not like instantly allergic, but it would slowly build up over time with this accumulation of what's called eosinophiles. And I can't eat. Yeah, and like my esophagus, some sort, or some kind yeah, of not so much that. It's just it just your esophagus shuts down. Okay, and you could literally not even get water down your esophagus. So, so um, can it be deadly? Well, I mean, if you don't eat, you can't. Get, if you don't get it fixed, it could be deadly because you could just die of starvation, right, and uh, lack of uh, you know hydration. Um, so I remember when I was like eighteen. I was in the hospital for a week. I was like one hundred and twenty-five pounds or something like this, and Damn. the doctors are like, "We don't know what's wrong with you, but." your esophagus isn't working. So we have to do a procedure. So every six to 12 months since that age, they would do this procedure where they go in and uh, widen up my esophagus so I could eat again. And I didn't realize that this disease actually undermines like my um, ability to absorb nutrients properly and to, uh, to recover properly. So it just meant that 
all of my endurance activities, I was never able to properly recover like the other athletes. And I never knew why. They were training like them. And, but I and just, you're like beat and they're all like roaring to go the next exactly, day. And you're like, yeah. what's going on? What's going on? Exactly. But, but now I know that it's just like there's some bizarre, like it's a bizarre diet. So I don't eat fish. I don't eat any tree nuts and no raw fruit or raw vegetables. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I can't eat an yeah. apple. And if I eat an apple right now or like a raw carrot, like I literally get sick, like super sick, like a really sore huh. stomach. So it's just so like only cooked fruits or vegetables. Like only, an apple pie would be okay. Apple pie is fine. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, you wouldn't want to be Canadian and not be able to eat apple I know. pie. <laughs> so, so I'll have like blueberries or strawberries with yogurt, mm-hmm. but I have to like cook the strawberries and blueberries for two or three minutes. And then you can let them cool. Yeah. Let them cool. And okay. Put them in. Weird. So that's just a weird diet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But since I've been on this diet, I haven't had to have my esophagus stretched, which is amazing. How did you figure this out? Was it just trial and error or like um, the, some, fin- some some research project somebody did that you read no, it's, a report? It's, it's finally getting a really good doctor. Um, okay. The doctor I had before, he said, yeah, there's new research. It's kind of like, you know, this eosinophilic esophagitis is kind of related to diet, but we don't really know. You're better just to, to take steroids. We'll kind of you know, deal with the inflammation and everything else. And I never felt good on the steroids. Mm-hmm. I always felt kind of lethargic and I was like, you know, gaining weight. And yeah. Just didn't feel right. Then I, then he retired. I ended up getting into the emergency room one day, couldn't swallow. And they signed me this new doctor. Uh, Dr. Bulos. And he's like, he's one of these doctors that just like won't stop until he finds out what's going on. Right? Exactly what you want. <laughs> so he, he made me go see this specialist and that she's an allergist and she's put me through all sorts of tests on things to do. So I saw her actually two weeks ago and now she wants to put me on something called biologics, but it's a, um, it's a test. So she wants to introduce me to this doctor in Ottawa who um, is doing all these interesting um, tests with the placebo and with the drug to see if it will impact okay. uh, positively. And she says, look, you, don't, you won't know if you're getting the placebo or the yeah, drug. Yeah, you're part of a control group. You're part of a control yeah. group. Yeah. But she wants to put me on this to see. And but she thinks in a year or two it'll become Well, that's the thing is they need Canada. people to do it so yeah. they can actually, you know, before yeah. it otherwise they, they just stall out as well right exactly so. yeah but since i've been on this diet uh you know i everything feels like i just feel so much better i'm sleeping better i'm riding more i recover faster um all sorts of things are just yeah better. diet totally has to do with riding bicycles more <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah so, yeah. so yeah. you um did you ever go on any bike tours then because you did say you had a was it a norco touring mm. bike yeah, well, back then I, I did do a bunch of just like overnight camping trips as a teenager. Um, that's all I, you know, mm-hmm. all I would do. But mostly it was still significant as a teenager. Yeah, as a teenager. Yeah, that's right. Back then, it, you before Strava, social media, whatever, right? You didn't record anything. I actually remember um, back when I was in my early, like late teens, early twenties. I had like a little notebook, and I would write, okay, Monday, kind of rest day, easy. Tuesday, do the crits, you know, Wednesday, two hours, Thursdays, do hills, Wild. Saturday, no, Fridays, uh, maybe an hour ride. And then depending if you're racing or not, like Saturday was either the race day or Sunday was the race day. Mm. So you'd always have, like, if the race day was Saturday, 
then you do like a really long, slow, easy ride on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. But if the race day was Sunday, then you do like a really easy hour ride on the Saturday. Oh, okay. And that was kind of what the training looked like yeah. back then. It was fun because it was just That's something good. I read down like, in a yeah. book and it has to make really... it up as you go. And <clears throat> nobody thought ever thought of coaches and stuff like on that to that level, right? Like now, well, actually, back then, um, there was a guy working at Sportable named Chris Dotson. I don't know if you know Chris Dotson, no, local no. guy, no. maybe in his 60s now, super, super nice guy. If you ever meet him, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot working with him. Uh, like, like, what's one of the things I, I found about working in the bike store? Uh, when I was a teenager is that um, I felt like those are really formative years, not only just like for learning how to work on bikes and fix bikes, but also just being around people that were so disciplined Mm -hmm. and so focused on like athletics and diet and training plans. And so guys like Chris Dodson. And I feel like back in those days too, like back in the day, um, cycling wasn't nearly as popular as it is no. now. So like the people who were in the industry were really, you know, typically hardcore cyclists. They were. Right. Yeah. And we're now it could just be anybody like there's such a big industry. It's- exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So guys like Hans Leffelholtz, I hope I said his name correctly. Chris Dotson back then, uh, Matthew blue, Mike till Jamie Sunderland, all these guys were guys I would used to ride with. They're all in their fifties and sixties now, but they're still fit. They're still riding. Um, That's and, and I learned so much. Uh, you know, Mike Johns, you know, I learned so much riding with these guys. This like useless gangly teenager, right? I had no clue what he was doing on a bike. But over time from riding with him, I, like, I we can only to... ride with him every four days because it takes him forever to recover. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, and then, you know, in my 20s, I'd spent so much time focused on my career. Um, and then when I moved back, and it, when I moved to Paris for the first time, um, I ended up getting back into cycling um, and like road cycling okay. and racing a lot more, uh, just because here I was steeped in, in France, like Tour de France. And yeah, it's just like the, just the, it just inspires your imagination to ride so much. So I ended up riding a lot, um, and like maybe well a lot. I mean back then it was because I was working still. It was maybe two hundred k a week. Mm-hmm like one ride during the week and then Saturday, Sunday, like, yeah. like just, and that was all I could sort of fit in, but it was still enough that I was fit. I was having yeah. fun. Uh, enjoyed the bike thoroughly. It got to, uh, if you ever ride in Paris, there's something called the, the Longchamp, which is this, um, hippodrome, which is like a horse, um, racing circuit. Okay. But on the outside, there's this cycling circuit. I think it's like almost four kilometers. And, Every day of the week, you could find groups of cyclists and literally they're going at like 40 to 45 K an hour. And you just get in, like you arrive at nine, nine thirty yeah. in the morning and everyone's just kind of warming up. And sun, suddenly somebody says, okay, c'est parti, meaning it's time to go. Time to go. And then suddenly it goes from like 30 K an hour, to like 45 K an hour. Yeah. And you just sit in it. So I, I like go for these two, three hour rides and then come back and realize I've done like hundred K. <laughs> Just because I was sitting in yeah. at like 45K an I remember, hour. I remember doing a century ride in Malaysia and it was probably like 2013. And I was kind of at my peak. I'd been riding so much every day, you know? <clears throat> and this whole century ride, I mean, I was with the lead group for the first 135 kilometers or so. Yeah. Um, we were averaging 40 plus, you know? Wow. <laughs> and I was in such great shape. I was a beast. I was a monster. But, uh, and then I got a flat tire and I was oh, like, no. fuck. <laughs> that was the end of it. 
Yeah. And then I got in with group B. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, it's all good. Yeah, that's the thing with cycling, right? You could be having your best day, then you get a mechanical or you get stuck behind a crash or something happens and then you yeah. lose the lead group. It's like the yeah. story of my life. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, but then after moving back to Canada, um, when my daughter was born, I ended up getting close to a bunch of running friends uh, at IBM. And because I was just so focused on kind of career again and like, you know, buying the house and all the stuff you need to get around kids and trying to just, you know, make some good money for, to support the family. Especially when the kids are in the picture, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything changes, right? Like your, your whole mindset changes. You know, I'm a teacher. I keep right? asking my wife, I'm like, babe, just come on, get to that $200,000 a year mark so I can quit teaching and I'll homeschool Jasmine and just ride my bike. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. But not sure she's so keen on it. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up just <laughs> becoming a runner for a really long time. Okay. And uh, because that's, I could still get that it endorphins. Right? Yeah. I could still get the endorphins. I could still escape. But like a half hour run was kind of equivalent to an hour and a half bike ride. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up, when I moved to Paris, I ended up doing like also, like the second time I moved to Paris in 2014, 2017, I was mostly a runner as well. And I just ran a lot, like, maybe a thousand kilometers a year or something like that. Oh, wow. So I did a number of half marathons and a few trail races. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did the Paris marathon, but the Paris marathon happened um, when my wife and I were going through something pretty challenging. Like I mean, our, our marriage is solid, but there's some challenging stuff going on in the family where I realized I showed up the day of the marathon, just absolutely exhausted. So, <laughs> but I finished it. In like four hours and 20 minutes. That's still which, better than my first marathon. Which was just, marathon. yeah, this is the one marathon I've done, but I, I've, I've ran those distances, but, but in this one Paris marathon that I so want to do well in, because like two weeks prior or three weeks prior, I'd done a 30 kilometer run in like, uh, like two hours and 15 minutes. I thought, okay, well, this is going to be great. You know, I could do the, like, you know, the next 12 kilometers or 16 mm-hmm. kilometers or whatever, um, like another 45 minutes or something. And, but not 45 minutes, another hour and be fine, yeah. right? So hopefully I was trying to target three and a half hours, but no, I mean, that day was just not cooperating with me. Anyway, and then and then I ended up getting invited to do this um, uh, Tour de France stage. Oh, this is getting away. Yeah, yeah. So, which is really fun um, because it was with IBM and one of our main sponsors, or main, sorry, main partners was Schneider Electric. And Schneider Electric was the main sponsor for um, ASO and the Paris Marathon. So the partner manager at Schneider somehow managed to get me invited to this VIP all-inclusive stage ride at the Tour de France. So I was able to ride the stage um, before uh, the pro cyclists came through. That's really cool. So I trained a lot just for that and ended up you know, I think it was, yeah, I don't know. I ended up doing like uh, all of June, ended up riding three, four days a week just so I could build up the fitness again so I could do mm-hmm. this one ride because I knew it was going to be intense because all these pro looking cyclists came and showed up and it was fun to, to ride with them. Um, and then after that, I put the bike away again, just continued running until I moved back to Canada. But when I moved back to Canada, I just decided to get back into cycling again. My kids were old enough, they were able to do their mm-hmm. own thing. 
Um, I had a little bit more time yeah. and started cycling more. How old are your kids now? 12 and almost 16. Okay. My older daughter will be 16. Is this the older one that's doing the rowing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's into rowing. Keeps you guys busy. Huh? Keeps me very busy. Rowing, art, dance. She's, she's got this incredible curiosity. That's for good. just everything. That's good. Yeah. But, but now I'm riding more than I've ever ridden. Yeah. So you, about a year ago, right? Or yeah. is it a year now you quit your job? I did. You are retired. Is that the word? Well, you no, yeah. not really retired because you consult still, right? Yeah, I'm consulting. Yeah. I guess I could retire, but one of the things you realize when you have kids, especially teenagers, that things cost a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I never want to hold them back from what they want to pursue and their curiosities. And so, like, if my kids are listening to this, it's like, you know, no, no worries. <laughs> I enjoy consulting. I really enjoy the people I'm consulting with. So, and, and the money brings in is great. Um, yeah, we haven't had to dip in any savings at all as a result of doing yeah. the consulting, which is good. And, uh, but the positive for me is, well, if you look at my, my last couple of years, <clears> I think in 2020, we're 2022 now, right? In 2020, mm-hmm. I think maybe I did 6,000 kilometers. In 2021, I did maybe 11,000 kilometers on the bike. How'd you get that many in? Wow. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then this year I'll probably top up a little bit over 15,000 kilometers. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right on, man. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like exact opposite 2020. I did my big tour. I was riding like crazy. I did, I think 600 K less than 10,000. I was like that last week when I realized in December <laughs> that I wasn't going to hit 10,000. I'm like, a bike and i was on the trainer and then i just like what the hell am i doing i'm like no like fuck it like yeah and then 2021 i think it was like 6k and this year was a little bit less but the baby doesn't it makes it challenging oh yeah it makes it really challenging yeah well i remember um even though i was like mostly a runner when my kids were like four and like three and four or whatever ages they were they were these perfect ages for being in the trailer Mm um and they absolutely love. I I go into a loop of the Gatineau Park, yeah, with them in the trailer. And that's what I discovered when you've got a kid in a trailer. The local cycling community is just phenomenal. Like one day I was going up pink and my chain broke. I didn't have a chain tool no. on me or yeah. a spare link, and some guy just I don't still to this day I don't know if I've ever seen him again. Okay, I'm sure I have because you know everybody's in the park mm-hmm. all the time, and yeah, he just pulls over, gets his toolkit out. And says, here, I've got a, like a spare part with a chain and a chain tool. And, you know, yeah, 10 minutes quick later, and quick links. And, and, yeah. yeah. So that's one of the things like, I mean, I think because of my time at the bike store, I'm just wired to always kind of help people when I see them yeah. on the side of the road. So I, I'm always doing that. So I always appreciate it if somebody, if I'm on the side of the road, so, hey, you okay? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't fine. so long ago. I was driving from sailing with my dad in the summer and we saw this guy with his bike upside down on the side of Highway 7, 17, sorry, 17. <clears throat> Yeah. And uh, we stopped and I was like, it was unfortunately, I couldn't fit his bike in the car because we had the baby, sister-in-law, mother and tons of stuff. And um, it was just unfortunate. I didn't have the roof rack on it. So, but I helped him out as much as I could. You know? That's cool. Which is yeah. interesting story. A friend of mine um, got two flats, like, like within a 10 minute time period and some security, like some, some, like a black big sedan sort of super, uh, SUV like kind of suburban vehicle, or something. suburban yeah. or whatever, 
pulls up beside him and says, Hey, I'll give you a drive somewhere. And some like security detail vehicle and like a, some secret service guy in the car. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a lift to a bike shop or home if you want. It's like, yeah. I can't believe it. Like this is like super friendly, like, you know, government worker. Yeah. But I remember once too, um, actually this year I was doing intervals in the Gatineau park. And I came across some guy, his bike upside down. He was just looking quite frustrated. And as it turns out, he had this bizarre break on the bottom bracket of his bike. It was a time trial bike. And just the way it was adjusted, it was rubbing against his wheel. Oh, okay. So he was yeah, super frustrated. Those, like, caliper yeah. brakes that are like on the bottom yeah. side. Yeah. And I couldn't figure it out. So here I was at the side of the park. Um, I was Googling it and getting pictures and stuff. And <laughs> so about 15 minutes later, we finally figure it out and I fix it for him. And he's like, oh, I'm so happy you fix it because I had this in the shop last week and I told him to fix it, but I didn't fix it. And I saw him later in the park and he's like, two thumbs up. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot for this. I love being able to do that kind of stuff. You know, I can, and, you know, even though I have a business degree and I'm like, I'm not no longer kind of working with my hands, but the, the, those years of being at a yeah. bike shop and back then, right, bikes were not like today. I mean, I, I don't think, I think I'd be a horrible mechanic today because You've got Such hydraulic brakes. Right? But back then, it's like, you know, hey, the derailleur's not working. Oh, it's bent. Let me just bend it back. <laughs> you know, literally with your hand, yeah, you yeah. bend it back into shape. Well, yeah, like you're disc, good to go. Uh, disc brakes, I know they had the tool and you just, if you didn't have the tool, you just use pliers and just try to bend the discs. <laughs> exactly, straight. yeah. But but yeah, nowadays, like with pistons and yeah. hydraulics and, and some of the uh, press fit bottom brackets, I don't know if I'd be a good mechanic today. <laughs> I like that things have gone like randomly uh, back to the uh, threaded bottom brackets. Like it seems to be a lot more of them now. I think every one of my bikes has a threaded bottom bracket. So much easier. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting. I watch a lot of YouTube videos while I'm like on a bike trainer. And a lot of these bike reviewers, they always knock these high end bikes that come with press fit bottom brackets. And they say, oh, they're probably trying to save weight. But, you know, the reality is it's better to have like a threaded bottom bracket because it's just like better for maintenance and all that stuff. Sorry about that. We just paused to add wood to the fire and now we don't remember what we were talking about. So. Yeah. But um, I, I will go back to one thing with kids and bikes is that uh, my younger daughter, um, I think when she was three <clears throat> or maybe two and a half, on Saturday mornings, my wife would take my older daughter to ballet and my younger daughter loved getting into the trailers so much nice. that she would bring me my cycling shoes. Like, you know, I'm like doing the dishes or cleaning up. And the minute my wife and the older daughter would take off to go to ballet, my younger daughter would bring me the cycling shoes. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> say, hey, let's go. Like, let's go. Jasmine's great. I take her. I have an older chariot I picked up used. And within five minutes of any ride, she's usually passed out. I mean, she's sub a yeah. year old, so it's great. Sleeps for, I can climb all the way to Champlain and she'll wake up some part way up near the end usually. And then I'll give her a snack at the top and we'll play a bit and then put her back in and ride down. That's awesome. What more yeah. could you ask for, you know? Yeah. Oh, I have to send you a video link. There's a guy who did a YouTube video. Um, he did a, a race. Is it the Danny McCaskill one? Daddy Daycare? No, no, not that one. No, it's <laughs> like this guy actually does, I think it's like a 300 kilometer ride with his son, who's maybe two. No. 
in the chariot or the trailer or whatever it is that they had. I don't think it was a chariot. It was Burley, I think. Okay. These guys from Vancouver. Yes, send me this. Yeah, I have to. <laughs> um, and I was so inspired by the video. I reached out to him, just like tried to find out who he was and website. And, and I sent him a note saying, hey, look, you know, I absolutely loved your video. It was so inspiring. And his little kid, Oliver, I think is a kid's name, Ollie. And his kid is just so adorable. And it's just like to hear the things he was saying or reminded me of when I had my kids in the trailer and I'd like, uh, like ride around with them. But what's even more impressive is that this guy, before he did the race, he actually crashed two weeks prior and had a broken, either broken rib or broken shoulder. Okay. And he still did it. It was like 24 hours riding like this really gnarly gravel race. And I was in tears at the end because the organizer made a special prize for his category. Oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, it was just like such an amazing thing. Oh, I have to find find it and send it to you. Um, and then you should put it in the show notes or something because people should watch this. Yeah, if you do send that to me, I'll add it for sure. Yeah, he's uh, um, a really special guy. Yeah. yeah, so at what point did you like – go from like being your typical everyday road biker to, to start into the bikepacking scene. Cause I think that's, yeah. I mean, um, I'm guessing it's fairly recently. It, it is. Yeah. Cause of cause, bikepacking. Cause what happened was when I was, I think just turning 40, sorry, turning 50, I was thinking to myself, okay, well I'm turning 50. What should I do? Which is unique and different and just to shake things up a bit. So I decided I would, you know, because I, I loved like back, uh, bike, backpacking and bike touring and this thing, bikepacking was becoming really popular. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to just get all the gear as a birthday gift to myself and just figure it out and like go and do a bunch of really fun events. And then um, while I was getting all this gear together, um, another local cyclist who didn't know me very well at the time, but kind of shocked me with his graciousness to invite me to do the log driver's waltz with him. So okay. David Wright. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who's super nice guy. Um, you know, a lot of the guys on the Eurosport team are super nice. So they're really good people. Um, and so he's on the Eurosport team and he reaches out to me and says, Hey, yeah, I do this log driver's th- waltz thing. You want to join me? So, I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, why not? Why not? I'd love to do it, right? Um, so I you know, got all the gear together and I did a couple of test rides and I rode out to my brother's farm near Alexandria overnight. Okay. And, like, and it was, I was feeling really good, feeling positive. And then, yeah, I ended up uh, doing the, the log driver's waltz that year. So that was sort of like the 50th birthday you gift You set a to record, myself. didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I set a record for the slowest known time. Yeah, I think it took me 88 days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I really wanted to get it done but i'm gonna do 10 kilometers per year for the next like <laughs> 70 years <laughs> yeah no i just uh i really wanted to finish it david finished it in five days um i had sort of committed to my wife that i'd leave tuesday come back friday night and we were pushing into saturday mm. and she was not happy with me extending it another day so yeah i Sometimes you have to make that, yeah. you know, pull the plug for the right compromise. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up 
saying goodbye to David up in Venosta and then thinking, okay, it's probably only like 60K back, but it actually ended up being like another 75, 80K back. And um, I ended up getting back by dinner. But um, yeah, I learned a lot about bikepacking and what to do and not to do. And uh, that was that was a lot of fun. There's so much. It's so intricate. Like it's, It is, yeah. It's not just, you know, dead dead uh, fire but anyways i killed it Um, yeah i'm i'm not cold it's okay okay (laughs) but yeah Yeah, i i I want to do it again this like for some reason and then and then this year i think i was trying to i think this year was a bit of a trying to find an equilibrium between no longer working to consulting to spending time with the family to spending time on the bike to supporting my kids as they're getting older and all the things that my daughters are into like rowing and dancing and yeah, because it's been a few weekends where I'm messaging, you're like, "Oh, something came up. I gotta, I gotta go for rowing or this exactly." Like, or yeah. it does it conflicts with the schedule? And I was like, yeah. "That's cool, man. I'm, I've got a one year old, but I already know what that's like." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like they're like I signed up for the gravel uh, cup series this year. Oh. And two of the races I couldn't do because I was with my daughter at a rowing thing, um, somewhere else in Ontario. Um, which is which is fine because I really enjoy spending time with yeah. her and supporting her, which is good. And I think sometimes you bring your bike with you when she's when she's off rowing. You're out biking. Yeah, that's out. right. Yeah. So when I went to southwestern Ontario, I ended up um, doing some some riding like around Paris, between Paris and Cambridge, mm-hmm. then again around uh, Niagara Falls. So that was fun. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. But I I did take my bike to one of her races. It turns out the race was. Um, so intense and she had two or three races that day and it just meant I didn't have time to mm-hmm. kind of get away from the scene. It happens. Yeah. Do you see yourself like <clears throat> either in the bike packing or bike touring format trying to get away like out of the region and going further afield like whether it's the yeah. Silk Road so, or Atlas yeah, or there are, even just touring through the yeah. Premier Highways. So or- yeah it's so actually turning back to like when I just when I was turning 50, sure. it, was, it was right when, when COVID was happening. And my original vision was I would um, take my gravel bike and set it up with bike packing gear. And my vision was for my 50th birthday to myself, I'd land in Bordeaux, France, and then over two weeks, ride from Bordeaux to Venice, Italy. Ah, nice. And just do that and spend however many hours a day riding the bike and then do that myself on my own or with whoever like I could find to come along with me. Uh, but then COVID hit. Right. <laughs> and the world shut down. The world shut down, right. So, um, but I'd love to, there, there are three really cool races and then one that I think is just not doable until my kids are like out of university or in university. Mm-hmm. So, I'd love to do the Badlands in Spain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's cool in September. Um, the Atlas Mountain Race. I'm yes. seriously considering it for February, but I think like the website, like I don't know if you could register or if the registration's closed because I was oh. on the website today and I don't, and it didn't have any like place to register. So I went to the FAQ section and it said, enter your email and we'll send you when registration opens. But I think registration may already be closed yeah. because awesome. I think a few weeks ago I saw a registration link, but I'd love to do that race. Yeah. Um, the Silk Roads inspires my imagination, but I'm not sure Feels I want like to. like maybe too much suffering? Yeah, maybe too much suffering. Like I, I watched uh, uh, a video. Uh, is it Sofiane Suheli? Suheli. Yeah. Suheli. 
he's an amazing character. But yeah. I watched the video he did, and I just thought to myself, man, this, I'm not sure I want to ride this through the one stuff. that just came out. Yeah, yeah, the, I haven't seen it yet. But. Yeah, the one that just came out where he shows like video of like riding at night through some pretty like stuff that doesn't look rideable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like somehow getting through it. He's like, oh. That's that looks treacherous, right? And I, I still want to be alive for my kids at some point. Um, and then there's the Great Divide. You know, yeah, who doesn't want to for sure. not do the Great Divide at some point? Tour Divide or Tour Divide, sorry, yeah. not the Great Divide, the Tour Divide. Yeah, from Banff to New Mexico. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping maybe like 2024, 2025. It's kind of that's the hopeful radar pitch on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks like next year we're going to go to Europe and. My wife's family is Iranian, so she wants to go meet her family in Turkey oh, awesome. and rent a Airbnb or something for a couple of weeks. So I told her I'd, I'll stay with her family for a couple of days on each end, but the rest of it I'm going to go bike touring. Awesome. And she said, okay, as you wish. Like, That's awesome. She's like, then I don't have to translate every freaking minute. <laughs> and there's lots of people who watch the baby. I'm like, perfect. We're all in agreement. Good. I'm going bike touring. It's a win-win for everyone. <laughs> She doesn't have She's to the best. Stress about you and <laughs> translating, and got somebody to take care of the baby. That's awesome. That's Everybody wins. Everybody wins. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I think uh, one of the things I'm thinking of doing next year is I like I have an unfinished business with a log driver's vault, so I want to get that done. And I think that I'm going to do on my own. Like, You're going to ITT it then? Yeah, yeah ITC. It. Yeah, yeah, probably. Try to. It's like in in backpacking, they call it like fast packing. So you take yeah. the, as little That's, gear as possible, yeah. and yeah. you just try to get it done. Right. So yeah, maybe exactly. like a an emergency bivy, and mm-hmm. yeah, like no stove, and just like as sure. much food as possible on a water filter, and just go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you've done it, so you know the areas where you like. You know, I've ridden it too, and I did it pretty fast. You did, yeah. um, but I know where I could improve still. You know because. Yeah. Having done it, you see where your deficiencies were, you yeah. know, where you, where you can improve. Um, yeah. And, and I think also too, is just some self-confidence in it as well. Like not knowing what you could actually push your body through. Mm-hmm. Like I think on the second day, one of the reasons why it took us longer when David and I did the log driver's waltz is that the second day we were um, on the Arkville Road, which you know the Arkville yeah. Road, right? And anybody who does a log driver's waltz or does any kind of gravel near and around Ottawa knows that the Arkville Road is like this never-ending, like up and down, peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys, mm-hmm. and the gravel's soft. Um, not even a road I'd take a car on, right? It's just, yeah. it's like ATVs or It's funny cars. though, sometimes like, um, you know, even with my, my route, uh, through Papineau Bell, I drove a car through it the first time. I test routed the area. Brutal biking, uh, way faster because all those big ass rocks, you just skip them, you know. Yeah, Where, exactly. So, but yeah, our cold road. Sorry, carry yeah, on. no, it's <laughs> yeah. We all like, sometimes it's faster on a bike to get through these roads, but yeah. but we I think we started that morning at six thirty, pedaling our bikes, and I think it was one thirty, and we done maybe 95 kilometers and we're like looking at each other thinking this is like the slowest 100 <laughs> kilometers brutal. we've ever done and it's like and, and we didn't have any food and that section between um charbot lake and uh calabogie calabogie fucking brutal 
Yeah, there's there's like nothing. Right. Yeah, and there's. I, I knocked on somebody's door and asked them to fill up my water bottles. Like, yeah, yeah, it was, there's it was nothing. Tough. So you have to, yeah. So you have to just power through it. Mm-hmm. I think when I was down to like two or three power bars or something. I think David had no more food left, and we ended up getting to Calabogie around four o'clock. Well, at least the restaurants were still open. Yeah, the restaurants were open. And everything. And I think anxiety was kicking in. Um. But I think if had we just like gone directly to a restaurant and eaten, we probably could have gotten back on our bikes and kept going to the target destination from that for that night. Okay. But I think because we didn't know what the next section was going to be like, we didn't know if it was going to be like another seventy kilometers of that. It gets way better, right? Like as yeah. soon as you get Calabogie, it's like ah, oh, life is good again. <laughs> I know. Like like after Calabogie, it's it's just like. Really smooth it's really gravel road. Fast until you hit Quebec. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Until you hit um after uh after Shawville. After know. Shawville, yeah. 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 Even after Shawville. After on the, way the to... whole rail trail section. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like you could like I'm thinking like next year if I do it, I'm gonna start from Ottawa and aim to keep riding until I get to mm-hmm. like Shawville or something yeah. like that. And I and I said even in my I did a ride cast on it and I started in Kazabazua. Or is that how you say it? I think yeah. It's, yeah. And um, I started there just because, I don't know, I didn't want to start from home. I felt like coming through the Gatineau Park as a very last thing would be brutal if you're two and a half days in and you're sleep deprived. Yeah. Um, so I started in Kaz. And I think actually starting in um, in Almont is I think they have it. It's perfect. It's the perfect place to start because yeah. you're still fresh when you go through that whole entire Charvet Lake to Calabogie, you know, yeah. like relatively fresh. It's still yeah. within the first 24 hours. True. Yeah. Um, you still have snacks in your bags. You have any energy balls or whatever you've made or prepared. You have stuff. Yeah. If you start up there, by the time you reach, you know, Almont, you're already running low and it's all about resupplies. And if you mess it up like I did, you're, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> It started um, hallucinating or something. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was brutal. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, but no. I think I think Almont is a perfect start point for that. Right? Yeah, I think or Eric Ottawa. Can, you know, you're just yeah. thirty kilometers, forty kilometers out. Or something. Well, Almont is well the, the way to get to Almont. The proper route to get oh, to yeah. Almont from from here, at least the log drivers' waltz route, mm-hmm. is a little bit meandering. Like once you get to yeah, that's right. Carlton Place, straight. it doesn't take the the trail, the TCT mm-hmm. or whatever you call the Algonquin Trail. It actually meanders through some gravel roads right, for right. a while before getting into uh, into Almont. So I think it's like maybe eighty kilometers. Is it that much? Okay, maybe yeah, remember. somewhere between sixty to eighty kilometers. But it's easy. It's just rolling, like mm-hmm. you know, it's just yeah, just rolling. Maybe some ups and downs. But then afterward, after that, that section, California Road, and then there's the. Uh, I love California Road. Yeah, I do too. A, yeah, such a fun road. Yeah, I almost lost it though on California Road with the Jeep coming around a corner and David because you know the road's pretty tight, mm-hmm. pretty narrow, right? It's like almost double track, you know. And I was riding on the left side of the road and David was on the right side of the road, and some Jeep comes up and they like slammed on the brakes and honked at me because had they not done that, it probably would have been a hood ornament. So, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of bike are you riding? Um, uh, where are you riding for that? For that, I was riding a really old specialized hardtail. Okay. Um, specialized hardtail cross country mountain bike, um, 2015 maybe. Like a stump jumper? Or? Yeah, stump oh, okay. jumper. Yeah, world tour. I figured that or an epic. Yeah, 
and carbon super light bike uh, suspension front end and only 90 mils of travel. But is that all I have? Yeah. Okay. Back then, anyway, yeah. it was an old yeah. it's an old bike, but it's phenomenal um, for bikepacking. And I remember when you built it up and like prepared it for bikepacking, you were supposed to pictures and I was like, yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's just, I love that bike. Like it was just, it got over everything on the log driver's waltz. Um, and I think like next year, that's the bike I'm going to use. And if yeah. I do any bikepacking races, that's the bike I'm going to use. Yeah. Because it's got wide tires, but they're carbon wheels. The bike weighs 21 pounds. And it's super fast and really comfortable. And the gearing is, I, up, I upgraded the gear, uh, the gearing to, I think, is it 12 speed? I think I upgraded 12 speed. Like Eagle GX? Yeah, Eagle XX1 or whatever. Oh. So the, the top of line before. Retirement's treating you well. <laughs> yeah, so the top of line before the uh, electronic shifting. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to get electronic shifting. Uh, I wanted to reduce any kind of needs for uh, batteries. Out yeah, there I'm always. Well, I, mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to say, you know, like because shifting a lot can be hard on the the nerves and like your wrists and stuff. Where you know, electronic takes all that away, but at the same time, you have the other, um, you know, the chance that things go wrong. Yeah. Well, but I think it brings us to the same. That would be like comparing rim brakes to disc brakes. And when disc brakes came out, everybody's like, don't go with disc brakes. Like they're going to overheat. You're going to cut yourself like crash. And like, it was the craziest, like uh, conspiracy theories behind disc brakes. <laughs> I remember that. And yeah, I think probably electronic shifting is not bad, you know? <laughs> no, I, I'm sure it's just it fucking expensive. I, I, I've, <laughs> I've yet to experience electronic shifting on any of my bikes. I think the next bike I get will probably have electronic yeah. shifting on it. But I think for bike packing, like if I'm going out for three or four days, then you gotta have a spare battery. Exactly. Yeah, it's and I just don't want to. I don't want to risk it. You know, when I was building my uh, my my divider um, with Brockton's help, I couldn't get the. Uh, there were some components I couldn't get the drivetrain stuff really. Um, there was the cassette shifter, um, so I just had to order it through another company, another bike store. But he's like, I can get you the electronic stuff. And I was like, how much? And he told me. And I was like, I don't think my wife is going to go for me spending <laughs> more because I've already kind of gone way over budget. And, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. You know, the stuff is beautiful, though. And I think like the high-end Shimano, you can't get anything but electronic now on the road. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. I think Altegra and Durace, Durace are now only electronic. No way. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chickshocks Fat Bike, the Catadan Gravel Bike, and the Taiga Mountain Bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bikepack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. 
For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to panoramacycles.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, speaking of disc brakes and rim brakes, I remember when I bought my road bike in 2018, um, I had the option of getting rim brakes or disc brakes, and I regret not getting the disc brake bike. Yeah. Um, because that same bike, same build, same frame with disc brakes gets wider tires on it than oh, my bike with yeah, rim brakes. Right. And I've got 28s, but I'd love to be able to get 29, 30. Which bike is this? Your gravel? It's, it's, no, it's my Cervelo okay. uh, oh. R3. Oh, nice. I love okay. the bike. It's yeah, a good yeah, bike. Great bike. Yeah. Uh, I got it through Glenn Rendell, who's like Ride with Rendell. Ride with Rendell. That's the club I'm that's the main club I'm part of. You gotta so. tell me about this, because like I, I didn't even know what it was until like recently. There's so many clubs. Every time I look at Gene's pictures on Instagram, it's like <laughs> different clubs, different this and that. He's like he's you well, there I mean we're, uh, that's he's like, everywhere. Like back to like this this <laughs> thriving community that we have in Ottawa. We've got so many amazing clubs like Ride with Rendell. I've been a member or supporter of Ride with Rendell since Glenn created it 20 years ago. Okay. I think 2002. We actually just had our annual. Explain me the name. Banquet. It sounds like, it sounds like a charity ride or something. It's like, <laughs> that's why I'm, I was like so yeah, confused. And... So it's interesting. Actually, they, they went through the history of the name on Saturday night uh, at the annual banquet uh, for Ride with Rendell. And it was really, it was this vision that, that Glenn had to, um, inspire kids to um, train a certain way, approach racing philosophy a certain way. And he felt he had a lot to give back to the community. Oh. Um, and now was they're he a pro racer. Or? He was or like, he was, yeah, so. he was a continental pro racer. Okay. Uh, I think national champion five times uh, in track, maybe road too. He's super humble, by the way. Yeah. Like, like he won't tell you this stuff just in a casual conversation yeah. like he'll he'd have to get it out of him um and yeah so he's got a really interesting philosophy about how to approach racing and the club's really solid all the the people in the club men women they're just really fun mm. i don't think they have any big egos or anything they might have an ego while riding it's like yeah we've got to ride hard ride fast and like you know make our presence in a race um, but they're nice people, right? Uh, but yeah, Ottawa has yeah, yeah. competition's competition. That's yeah, a that's right. Thing, right? Well, Ottawa has all sorts of great cycling clubs. Yeah, Common Empire, Eurosports. I mentioned them earlier. Cyclery isn't Common Empire from like Kingston or somewhere? Or no, they're, they're in Ottawa. Ottawa. Okay, yeah, it's new. Uh, it's very newish. New. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Jamie Blades put that together. Uh, you've got Techne. I mentioned them already. I think you got Cyclery, Bikes and Beer, Strokers, Matt Large and his crew. Yeah, Capital Punishers, Auto Bicycle Club. Yeah, obviously. Uh, and then on the Quebec side, you got the Polo Velo, the Rouleur. Polo There's so Velo. many. I've yeah. just, I'm, I'm always blown away because I don't road bike anymore. So it's like, yeah, kind of discounts from a lot of them. Like, I don't really pay attention to that stuff. Yeah. 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 It's, I like it. I like seeing like all these different clubs and I like seeing the growth in yeah. the, in the industry and in the community. What's the growth been like here? Like, cause when, when I lived in Asia, so I lived in Malaysia for a long time. You know, in Kuala Lumpur, there was two clubs I was a really like close member with. I'd quite often, every week, I was riding with one or the other. And they were kind of on opposite ends of the suburbs. And, you know, one had 1,500 members. The other had 2,000 members. Wow. And you'd go out for a, well, 
Saturday, uh, in KL, it was Saturdays. Uh, Saturday morning ride would have somewhere between 70 and 100 riders in the Peloton. All the same kit or Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, they might be wearing one of the two clubs. Yeah. Guys, some people are multi- like me, you know, um, between a couple clubs. And you'd have huge Pelotons. And That's awesome. It was crazy and it was fun and the roads were so good. And I thought like, wow, like, is biking ever going to be like this in Canada? Because growing up, I never saw it like that. You know, it was yeah. always really small. But then all of a sudden it I was. came back and I was like, holy shit, there's cyclists, everywhere. road bikers yeah. everywhere. It's yeah. exploded, you know? I remember in the 80s, we were like the weird kids, right? Like I was like, like at school, everybody was like into hockey or soccer or some other sport. And I was like the cyclist. And I was like the weird kid that they made fun of, right? Because mm-hmm. I was like the cycling dude. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, now it's just, it's everywhere. It's it's incredible to see it. Like, And it's funny, um, Glenn and I were chatting with this at one point. Like in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you could count the women cyclists in Ottawa on one hand. But mm-hmm. now it's just, I go out, it's like, wow, there's so many women cyclists like everywhere. And yeah. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it's really something. fun, really fun to see the sport mm-hmm. um, have been so uh, broadened in terms of the people that are coming into the sport, mm-hmm. um, which is great. You know? and, and I feel like in general, Ottawa has done a very good job of – creating an environment that's conducive for the most part to cyclists, you yeah. know, like I know you were posting some crazy pictures of some weird intersections where they stuck posts in the middle of random places. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I'd say like for the most part, you know, when I see the news of what's going on in Toronto, I'm like, wow, we're, we're pretty yeah. lucky. You know, I, I know it's, it feels somewhat trite just to post like these bizarre things, but you know, I'm like, having a biking lawyer on the podcast next week. Are you? Okay. Yeah. Which one? Uh, David, David Shelnut. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I've got another friend who's also a bike lawyer, Ian mm-hmm. Brisbane. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, there's a couple. Of yeah. He's in, I, Ian and I have we've ridden together. We had lunch together. He's a good oh, okay. guy. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ottawa is like for those of us who live here in Ottawa, we think, oh, the cycling infrastructure is like crap. But um, you go to some of these other cities in North America, they come back here and it's like, Wow, actually, we've got like thousands of kilometers of like groomed trails and and pathways and shared mm-hmm. you know multi use path paths and gravel paths and all these trails and the Gatineau Park and it's just incredible the infrastructure we yeah. have here. Yeah, but, no Netherlands, but like yeah, yeah, no well. Netherlands, yeah. Um, like and no Belgium in terms of like the the road infrastructure and the cycling infrastructure, but it's. It's a lot better than some of the other cities yeah. in North America. Um, but some of the new protected bike lanes they're putting in, I don't know where the engineers are getting their inspiration mm-hmm. because I do feel like they're creating some dangerous situations for people, like very windy cycle paths along a dead straight road. Yeah. With lots of ups and downs. And it just feels like you're just asking for the cyclist to have some sort mm-hmm. of accident or run into something and even running through chelsea along a old chelsea road there's they've redone the pathway but then the curb drop-offs are like an inch where yeah. if you're on a road bike you're not going to want to ride on that no and if you have a little kid you're not going to want to ride on that because they're going to crash they're going to yeah, fall they they're going to go off that little inch and it's not much but they're going to crash yeah and it's just you know I, i'm with the stroller or the chariot behind me 
And I'm like, fuck, it's going to wake the baby up, you know? And she's going to be crying because it's thunk. Yeah. Um, so it's just some poor planning or like poor thought process that yeah. or the constructions or companies are getting away with things they shouldn't be, you know? Right. Yeah. But at least I'm, I'm hearing that in Ottawa, I don't know about here in old Chelsea or in mm. Hall or Gatineau, um, but in Ottawa, they're actually committing to clearing the bike lanes in the winter and putting salt really? down on, good. on them, yeah. awesome. which is good. So it means like, I'd love to see more and more people out mm. of their cars. Yeah. So you I mean on the, on the positive yeah. side, Having the protected bike lanes makes it so that children, older people, people who would normally never want to ride their bike on the road, mm-hmm. at least feel a sense of safety, Yeah. right? Even if they have to, because of the ups and downs, the curves, if they have to go 15 kilometers an hour, great. At least they're not in their car, mm-hmm. right? So that I think is fantastic. But for guys like you and me or women who've been cycling their whole lives and they just want to go fast, that becomes like a, a hindrance. It's like, oh, like, you know, I could either be on the road with the cars and do 30, 35 K an hour mm-hmm. and like, you know, get to the other end of Scott street in like 30 seconds or whatever. But if I get on the bike path, I got to go winding around posts. Like because go they're trying down. to make it so you can't go more than 20. Right. Exactly. Right. So, uh, and maybe by design, they're designing it to try to slow people down purposely to, to make it yeah. safer. Right. So but that maybe, just puts fast people on the road, which is dangerous as well. Exactly. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm actually getting better at going fast along that Scott Street section because I know it so well now. So I can actually get my average speed up on that segment. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Putting yeah. some challenge to it. See yeah. how fast I can between these pylons. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's I don't like, want to uh, encourage wait. people to create a Strava segment for it. I don't, <laughs> want to, I don't want to have anybody do something dangerous. But <laughs> So tell us about, um, you know, you, you've had... Uh, as we're talking about clubs, I mean, you got became an ambassador for Ghost Gravel. You're wearing this yeah, sweater wearing right their... now. Uh, tell us about Ghost Gravel. Uh, uh, I think right. they're doing a lot of cool stuff too, more around the Toronto mm-hmm. area. Or yeah, Toronto. so I'm probably the only Ghost Gravel ambassador in Ottawa or in Eastern mm-hmm. Ontario. I met um, the owner when I was riding the BT700. So oh, okay, Matt. Uh, uh, yeah, I forget Oaks. his name. Yeah, um, we just kind of talked yeah. a bit. He's yeah, he's a really good guy. Um, he, he, I think through his brother-in-law, he's a cyclist, loves cycling, and through his brother-in-law, um, ended up going up to uh, Almogwin, which is that section of Ontario just north of the Muskokas. Okay. So it's where South River is, just west of Algonquin, between Algonquin and sort of Georgian Bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that whole section, it's, it's fairly rugged, beautiful. Awesome lakes, um, really winding roads, lots of gravel, and some really old roads in there as well, uh, like the Nipissing Road. Mm-hmm. It's got all these old communities. Uh, yeah. When, like, the settlers first arrived, um, they would take the old Nipissing Road, and there are all these old settlements. And if you ride mm-hmm. slowly enough and look, you'll see, like, you know, ruins along the way. And so his vision was in calling it the Ghost Gravel is to go through all these ghost towns. Ah, That's why it's called Ghost Gravel. So the very first year we did it, which was, I guess, 2020. Last last year. 2020? No, 2021, sorry. Yeah, it was last year. Last year. Um, It was just 16 of us, and we wrote it. And he would make a point of stopping at these uh, these historic places along the route Mm -hmm. just to spend some time talking about the history, what happened, who lived at this house yeah. and 
it really shows a, like a wonderful appreciation. Well, I remember when they were doing a call out for ambassadors and I saw it and I'm like, oh, my wife's pregnant and it's way over there and I'm here <laughs> yeah. in Ottawa. So, <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad to see that you're an ambassador for them. Well, thank it's you. Really yeah, cool. it's it's great. And the, 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 the crew is phenomenal. Um, but also, Matt, uh, he's he's got a really interesting vision. Like it's it's never a race. It's we're there to have fun. We're there to ride as a group. We're there to enjoy gravel. Uh, and it's like 160 kilometers of gravel. Uh, like this year, there were two routes, a 90K route or 95K route, then like a 160K route. And 90% of it was gravel. And oh, it's, nice. just, it's just awesome. Um, but the aid stations, like it's highly encouraged that everybody stops at the aid stations okay. because they've got gourmet coffee, they got sandwiches, they got snacks, they got food. How and- would you compare their aid stations to? and Halliburton's because like I was oh. blown away by the Hurton and Halliburton ones so uh somewhat equivalent except you get the gourmet coffee okay yeah like the ghost they're, gravel they're, ones the ghost gravel truck right yeah the like ghost gravel coffee. truck yeah. right um so Matt's vision is he just wants to create this really unique experience um almost like a VIP gravel event mm. I love it because it's not like it's not competitive but, but it is competitive but it's not competitive like this year, there were three groups. You could either go to the fast group, the medium group, or the slow group. So I joined the fast group, and it was only like 10 of us. And like, I think 80 people registered. I was like, oh, it's only 10. Like, that means I don't get a chance to sit in that much. Yeah, you got to lead. <laughs> I got I to do some work today. Uh, but it was fun. It was great. And we, most of us, we, I think all 10 of us stayed together almost until like kilometer 130 or 140. Okay. And then people were just bonking because it was so hot. Oh, okay. And, I thought you were going to say people were starting to push to like break away or something. Uh, well, I think people were bonking with a ton of mechanicals, so many wow. flats, a broken chain at one point. Um, and then people were saying, look, you know what? Just just keep going. You know, I'm like, I'm, I've either bonked or I got a flat or whatever. So just keep going. So it ended up just being three of us who, end, who ended up, who, finished together yeah. from that group but then everybody else came in like 20 30 minutes later so it's not like we were way ahead it was just mm-hmm. more and we didn't race it hard we didn't like you know we had some segments that were kind of fun to try to go hard up the hill and you mm-hmm. get a prize for who's the first person up this hill, okay which is really awesome uh that was fun uh, but the other thing that matt does too which is um i think really it's about giving back as well um so just a couple other things one is there's a strong appreciation for the First Nations lands that we're on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's somebody from the First Nations around there who comes to kind of speak to uh, the lands and do a bit of a blessing and everything and wishes well and talks a bit about the history. Um, and then the other thing that Matt also um, mandates as part of the ghost gravel is that you donate money to a um, to get in as part of the mm-hmm. registration have to donate money to a mental health um, facility. Yeah, I was thinking about doing something similar with the Canadian Shield was to inst- not having a registration or anything, but just like to show that you've made a donation to a specific charity. And yeah, as a, you know, cause anybody, if you're going to go bike packing for several days, what's another 20 bucks to a charity, you know, like, cause you're yeah. already spending a lot on food for sure. You know? Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think he's, I can't, so I think he was requiring everybody to donate money to Cam H or Canadian I think it's Association for Mental Health. Okay. Yeah. And and I think because everybody donated at least $100. I think 
80 times 100, right? So, yeah, Fantastic. it's just amazing, right? And I get all these emails from them now and all the wonderful things that they're doing for mental health. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's just his vision. And his, uh, the other thing that he's also doing is he's got that, that really cool Defender. Um, what's the name of the company that makes Defender? Land Rover? Land Rover. Yeah, they've got that Defender painted all gray with a ghost goblin mm-hmm. colors. And then he's got this little trailer that serves really cool gourmet coffees, yeah. right? So he's now... Uh, going to other gravel events and, um, you know, it's part of his sort of a side business to promote ghost gravel, but also, you know, uh, you know, the race directors will ask him to come and yeah, go yeah. set up like, you know, along the different aid yeah, stations. Yeah, he did on the BT 700. He had a few, couple stops, I think okay. in the first 200 K because he was going to only ride 200 K that day. Okay. Uh, him and his crew. Yeah. And, uh, so I think they had two or three stops. It was cool. Like, yeah. Get, yeah. Grab some snacks and kept going and, yeah, I had a coffee once. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love the vision. Um, you know, the fact that it's not a race; it's just like a social event. But yeah, you, you could place yourself into three different groups, um, and that the stops are just like the sandwiches, the food, the yeah. gourmet coffee. It's just really, really nice. <laughs> nice. So anybody who's thinking of doing it next year, you should definitely like just jump on it the moment the registration opens. And what are you up to next year then? What's your what's your plans? Well, um, I'm going to try to do the individual time trial for the log driver's waltz. What time of the year are you thinking that? I'm like, thinking of doing it in June. Yeah. Right. So when the sun's up the most, when the days are the longest. Just as the mosquitoes hopefully are starting to die down? Or? Well, I don't know. I mean, actually, you gave me this great idea. Well, if you idea. don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> but you gave me this great idea. I don't know if you remember this idea. I remember. Um, this net that I have... Um, that I only have for if I have to like, you know, do some mechanical work or whatever. But you said actually it's awesome to put that over your helmet while you're riding. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember telling me that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to catch the the, the bugs that might hit you in the mouth. Yeah, especially at yeah. night, right? Because the yeah. bugs come out so much at night. It does make it harder to see though, because you know, it's like imagine oh, yeah. you're looking through a screen. But True, if your lights yeah. are good, you're you're yeah. good, you know. So anyway, yeah. so so I'm thinking you know, I'll try to use that strategy, but I'm yeah. hoping to do it in June when the days are the longest. Yeah. So I can ride as long as I possibly can with, with daylight. With yeah. daylight. Right. And try to get it done in three days, two or three days. Have you gone south and done the BT or? No. no. You know, I, I saw that they just announced like the BTXL, which is the BT, that little part up, what do you call it? That little peninsula section. Yeah. I have to look at his map because I, I saw it too and I didn't really look too closely. Yeah. I didn't have time yet. But. Yeah. So I think of that one. Another one I'm thinking of doing is um, the Follow the Water 500. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Has he announced a date on that yet? No, but I sent. No, him I, I an messaged email. him and said, "Hey, yeah. like, check out the website and like look at where everybody else is planning their 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 events, and so we can, yeah. like, you know, so you don't overlap, so people can actually get out and do everything, you know. So that was kind of the idea there. Yeah, that would and, be good. Like I don't know when did they do it last year? He. Didn't do a grand depart. No, no. he's okay. he hadn't. He said he wasn't sure when. So okay. yeah, I sent him an email. I think on Friday, asking him to add me to the list so I once he knows the date, I can sign up. Um, then, then and the good thing about a five hundred is just a day's ride, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, actually, it's funny. I was talking to Paul Gallipo. I don't know if you know Paul. Gallipo. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody you should get to know. He actually just bought like a super nice bike. Actually. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say anything on the podcast because um, I don't want to reveal the bike that he just bought. Okay. Um, tell me after. Yeah, maybe after. I'd, 
but it's a beautiful bike. I went over to his place on Friday to see his, his gorgeous, gorgeous bike. But he's got these visions of doing all these amazing uh, bikepacking events next year, um, or just some bikepacking adventures that are not like specifically tied to. Uh, he's, he's Paul Gallipo. I remember the name. He he works for somewhere that they made a route, right? A bunch of guys, him um, and a few other guys, or something. No, I mean, I, I think he's contributed to a bunch of routes. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, right now he's in between jobs. Yeah, I think I messaged him once and asked him about like just a like you know permission thing to use his words and. Yeah, um, not sure. If Could be. Well, he's yeah. he's famous for all sorts of things, but um, he's like a walking encyclopedia. Number one, um, number two, he's known for circumnavigating by bike the entire uh, perimeter or circumference of the city of Ottawa. Oh yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a three hundred kilometer ride. He did it nonstop, and uh, he was interviewed by the CBC. Fair enough. So. That's, and to this day, whenever I'm driving back into the city and I see the welcome to Ottawa, the first thing I think of is Paul. It's like, I don't know why, but just that, that just the somebody would ride their bicycle along the circumference for 300 kilometers. Like all the closest roads, right? Yeah, all the, yeah, all the closest roads. And you can actually go download his route. Um, and just there's something riveting or just it inspired my imagination. I knew at some point I'd get to meet him. I don't know exactly how we got to meet each other. I think we just reached out on Facebook one day. and I've done, you know, one ride with him yeah. and hung out with him a few times. And I'm hoping next year he and I will go off and do a few adventures together. Yeah, He's a really neat guy. You should maybe get him on your podcast yeah, maybe, maybe. at some point. Um, yeah. So, so I guess next year there's the ghost gravel for sure. Um, at least those two, uh, the um, log drivers, log drivers waltz. Yeah, and the other thing too is like, like, like I might try to sign up for the gravel cup series again because I, I actually really enjoy racing. Um, like those short 80k, 120k mm-hmm. circuits, they're hard. Like they're really hard. And is there like, is it kind of like? You know, with the cycle cross, you can't have over 38 mil tires. Is things like that with gravel cup? Is it different? Well, the gravel cup, you can ride almost anything. Like Whatever if you, you want, want to ride your road bike, you can, but you know, it's at, at your own risk. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I actually thought I might be able to get away with riding a road bike with 30 mil tires, but a couple of weeks ago, I crashed and broke my finger. Yeah, I see that. Cause I put some 30 mil tires on my gravel bike and like, I took a corner, Where which I could crash? normally, you know, you know, the Trans Canada Trail. Yeah. Um, as you're heading out of the city. And you go underneath the 416 or the 417 or whatever the highway is, mm-hmm. or not the 416, but the, the highway out to Canada. Yeah. Where all the, yeah. the 417, where, you, where all the graffiti is. Mm-hmm. Then you keep heading as if you're heading out of the city. Um, you've got that soft gravelly section. That just curve that yeah. goes right up the little tiny yeah. little slope. So in that section, I just my front wheel washed out and I landed on the. Uh, coming down? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back. Yeah. I was already in Carlton Place. I was on yeah. my way back. And. Yeah, I was just, I just didn't, because on my normal wheels, hitting that corner at like 25K an hour or whatever would have just been fine. Yeah, yeah. Right. But on the 30 mil tires, it just, that's funny. It makes me think of like when I was doing the log driver's vaults, I was probably what, a day and a half into my ride at that point. And I was exactly around that spot. And a guy came across and down that little gravel to the curve and just like, completely slid out like i got out of his way because i'm like oh he's on like a 
road bike. He's yeah. going way too fast. And he just completely bails. Oh, no. And like, I'm in the middle of like racing. And I'm like, hey, man, are you okay? And I start like pulling out bandages to give him and stuff. And he's like all road rashed. And I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I had some road rash. It's, you could just oh, yeah, barely see it here. But a lot more in my hip and, and here. Yeah, I was on the bike today. I was like just toweling myself off. I was like, looked at the towel. It was full of blood. I was like, why? Is, where's the blood coming from? I realized I'd scratched off some scab oh, on my yeah. road rash. <laughs> but but yeah, so there's 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 that um, the gravel cup series. I'd love to be able to do that again. Uh, Brendan and the gravel cup guys put on a really good series. I have um, to look into that. There's also the ride with Rendell uh, Clarence Rockland Classic, which is a gravel ride in the spring. Mm. That's a good one to do. Then Glenn with the ride with Rendell crew, they put that on. Um, yeah, and then um, the other thing too, I've been thinking a lot about is you know, well, climate change and like all these races are overseas, like Badlands and everything else. I'd love to be able to do them, but I'm trying to reduce my impact my impact yeah. and my footprint as much as possible so and is that like a result of like just your own thought process or is that like your girls like you know because i think that new generation they really like keep us in check a bit more yeah i you know especially my older daughter she's so aware of this as well she doesn't seem to be um like in my face about it but she mentions it but you know teenagers are funny like like hey dad we should really get an electric car okay I think that makes sense, but you know, she still takes twenty minute showers. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, and when she has a competition in Southern Ontario, it's okay to drive there. It's with okay gas to drive there. Yeah. Because, exactly. Yeah. 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 But um, well, but yeah. I think it's it's like it's what do they call it? It's like the it's just that positive outlook on life and the world and how they the envisionment of perfection, but at the same time, like once they get to the age where they have their own cars and licenses and, yeah. you know, they have the chance to travel that things go with, um, maybe, you know, maybe things like, you know, that mentality changes because they realize, Oh, I do want to travel. I want to see these places. I know. Yeah. 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 And I, I feel like I, my, my CO2 footprint is probably pretty big because I traveled so much for my career. Mm. Like I've been, probably like you all over the world right yeah. i've been to the middle yeah. east i've been to africa i've been to australia I've been to asia yeah i've been all over europe all over north america um you know it's uh, yeah, i think i've traveled to 40 something countries five or six yeah lived in six including canada so. yeah. but you know I, I i haven't owned a car like like remote like if you compare me to other north americans like i got my first car when i was i think just about to turn 30 really yeah okay so i used the bus or my bike throughout like from the age mm -hmm. like until i was like 30 and then i was working with a startup and i was riding my bike to the startup but then they were growing and they had to get a new office and the new office i was living in sandy hill at the time and the new office was like way out in canada i thought oh jesus they all live they're all out there now they're all out there so i ended up getting a car and then like, uh, like six months later, we get acquired by this French company, and I decide, okay, well, it was a cheap car anyway, so I ended up donating the car because it was like an old Honda Civic that had the engine block cracked or something like that. I just didn't know what I was doing when I bought yeah. when I bought the car. It was the first car. I want to buy a cheap <laughs> car, like you know, you bought a lemon. Bought a lemon. Yeah, it really was a lemon. It was like I really should have paid better attention when I bought that car. Um, and then I. Moved to Paris, didn't have a car, although the company I work with, they 
gave us cars as part of our, but it sat in the parking lot at the office. I would use it on the weekends every so often. Yeah, if you're going on like a a weekend away somewhere where you want to drive. Yeah, exactly. I think I had it for the last year of my tenure with them. I think we might have put maybe 2,000 kilometers in the car in a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you and your wife both just rode around? Yeah, well, she was. Yeah, she she rode her bicycle as well, or took the bus everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. She's very happy to walk everywhere. When we were living in Paris, the two times, she walked all the time. Oh wow! Yeah, Fantastic. And that's like where we live now. Um, like when we went back to Canada in two thousand six, the first time, she was insistent on buying a house in a walkable neighborhood. Ah, good call. So that's the only downside of living here in Chelsea is like, I teach in Ottawa, and yeah. I have no choice, you know, like, I mean, I would love living here and I wouldn't want to not live here, but at the same time, like even while well, biking is okay, but like winter, like fat biking would take a long time. It'd be a couple hour ride probably. Yeah. Um, maybe electric would be the way to go, like get an e-fat bike or something, yeah. um, something to consider in the future. But right yeah. now, I still work in two schools, so it's okay. So you I don't no even choice. have the choice of not having a car there. I, yeah. I did last year for a bit. I left the car at school during the week. Okay. I'd drive in on Monday with the car, with the bike in the car or on the car. And then I would use the car just to commute between the two schools and oh, ride great. back and forth all week. That's really good. Um, it's 23K. Yeah. It's not a far yeah. ride. So. I think I have some friends who do that too. I don't mm-hmm. think they publish it online, but I noticed a couple of my friends, like they'll have a commute one way. I'm like, the next day it'll be a commute in the evening or something like that or in the morning and like oh okay. uh, so for me it would be like monday i drive in then i would cycle home monday to school on tuesday home on wednesday like all week yeah. until friday afternoon and the, the car, car would back. come home yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think there's it a friend really of mine well. who who i think would drive his car out on monday morning and then ride back monday night ride out tuesday yeah and then the tuesday night probably drive his car back and then probably do the same thing the next mm. two days. Because you, you can see this on Strava, right? So yeah, yeah. Like, why is this guy... This guy's got a really weird habit. <laughs> he's like, okay, well, I guess he's either his wife's picking him up or he's taking the bus home or maybe his car is parked there, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, which is which is good. So, yeah, so back to this whole sort of CO2 thing. It's just, so Paul Gallipo and I have been talking a bit about this. And it's like, you know, like if we do the follow the water thing next year, we were thinking of riding to the start. Where's the start point? Is it near Hawkesbury somewhere? Or is it? Yeah, not too far from Hawkesbury. Or whatever the, no, what's yeah, the name of the town? Um, anyways, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, is it so, Bello? I don't even know where it no, is. No, it's past Montebello. Right? So it's, I think it's like a 110K highway trip from here. But yeah. I think. So yeah, by, dry, by, ride there the day before, have a good sleep. And yeah, then, exactly. And then do the Grand Depart together um, or, or do it on our own or whatever. But. I was just thinking there's a way to do that. There's another bikepacking one in Bromont, I think, later in the summer. I think with a so, grand depart? Yeah. Oh, it's new. I don't know about it. Yeah. Um a friend of mine, Amanda Brandamore, um, she did it, but the two hundred and fifty K one. I think there's a five hundred K and a longer one. Uh you have to look it up. Yeah, I find yeah, I find it's, it's I think it's a newer event too, which I think would be good to do that one as well. But yes, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way that I could sort of reduce my carbon footprint for all these cycling events, mm-hmm. right? And 
be able to ride out to them. And that's the problem with some of the gravel cup series. If you drive out to them, like if you drive out to Calabogie, you have to drive out to Kinburn or drive out to some other place. And same thing with the cyclocross series too. Like right? Lyle Wilcox, ride your bike from Alaska to Banff <laughs> yeah. to start the Tour Divide. Exactly. Yeah. Make that your training. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to kind of weigh these things. I've always been a bit of a, like, like in the, late 80s I just I loved riding my bike to get to and from work and mm-hmm. it was my passion and something I enjoyed doing and then after university I just said well you know why get a car I mean it's like I'd rather just like you know ride my bike and mm-hmm. like you know still be green and be environmentally friendly and this is yeah. like back in the 90s when it was not popular at all to yeah good people call me green gene because I was <laughs> trying to be environmentally friendly and I'd be specifically saying well that's why like I don't want to have a car because I just ethically didn't feel right. But but yeah, like you say, you get kids, you end up buying a house, you got a garage, you got a dedicated spot to park your car. You're like, uh, it's like so many forces, right? Yeah. And 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 we're so privileged in North America with our income levels and the economic opportunities in front of us. And so you could just you kind of get sucked into this lifestyle. Yeah. Where you're buying a car, right? But now, I mean, I love that there are all these new choices in vehicles. You get like an e-bike, you get like a e-car, you can get, it's like, it's amazing. that. You yeah. Can- I'm constantly looking like, well, every time it comes to application time for new schools, I'm like, can I find the closest school to the Quebec border? Yeah. That would allow me to just to ride my bike every day, you know, and get rid of the car. Are you not allowed to teach in Quebec? So I, I mean, I could, okay. um, it's a pay drop, but on the same uh, note, I, I looked into it. I'm, I'm considering <coughs> it. Um, you know, there's th- the benefits. Ontario has a way better pension plan. The health medical health insurance is much better plan. The downs, uh, the salary is a little bit less in Quebec, but if I was teaching somewhere around here, you know, yeah, the ability to just come home without driving 45 minutes would be great, yeah. you know? That is, yeah, there's some, be- well, lots of benefits. Maybe I'm like considering that. it. Yeah. Hmm. You wouldn't need to retrain or get a new certificate. No, no, it's, it's, you can transfer. Good transfer. Yeah. Yeah. What subjects are you teaching? Right? I teach French. French. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So. Elementary school. Elementary school. So if yeah. you did teaching in Quebec. No, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm a primary <laughs> junior teacher in Ontario. Okay. But coming back to Canada in 2019, I was well aware that there's a shortage of French teachers. So if I did my French <clears> qualification, <throat> I would immediately have a full-time job and I wouldn't yeah. have to do this five years of supply teaching or whatever. And, you know, we were coming here and we were like, let's, we want to buy a house. We want to start a family. Yeah. And sure enough, the best way to do all that is to have a full-time job right away. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I did it. So in Ontario forever, I will be a French teacher. There's no choice about it. Yeah. It's actually in the contract when they hired me, they say, as a French teacher. Oh, wow. Because you're qualified and there's a shortage. Okay. Coming to Quebec, I could teach, you know, I could become a homeroom teacher again, teaching English and math and science and right. Which would be ideal. Yeah. I much. I love maths and, you know. So that um, explains now why you have to teach in two schools. Yeah. I know. I remember meeting and speaking with a teacher friend of mine. She said, look, you know, there's such a huge shortage of French teachers right now mm-hmm. that you could probably get some sort of exception if you wanted to become a teacher. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, but elementary school is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I'm sure it is. Um, yeah. So you fat bike as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of bike do you have? How long have you had it? Um, I got my fat bike in 2019. It's a Norco um, carbon uh, fat bike. Uh, oh, nice. I love it. It's, uh, I think I've upgraded almost everything on the bike though since I bought it. Oh, just, yeah. Just because, um, like, unlike other mountain bikers, I use my fat bike year round. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Do you have a set of like smaller tires and like different rim for it in the summer? Or no, no, I just I end up just changing the tires over. So I've got studded tires for the winter and uh, non-studded tires okay. for the summer. Um, I've got woven wheels. The guys that woven though, they, they tell me that I really should just be riding those wheels in the winter. Why? Um, they said they're designed for winter and not really for like you know rocks and roots and stuff like that. Is that because like in fat bikes you get the big gaps in the middle, like where probably yeah. the tube could theoretically be punctured or like or I, the I guess the tape I, could I, be I punctured. Know. But I, I always set them up tubeless. But anyway, but I love those wheels. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've never had any problems with them. But yeah, Woven's really like an Ottawa like everybody has woven wheels. Yeah, woven, I mean, they're, woven, they're Ottawa based. Yeah, right? they're Ottawa based, so. but a woven wheels, Roos wheels. Uh, that's Michael Bennett's. Uh, okay. He's got a couple of different brands like Prologue and Roos. And okay. then uh, Woven's got all the Woven brand. And so there's some really neat Ottawa brands that and I, a lot of my friends Prologue have. is out of Ottawa? Yeah, out of Ottawa. No way. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a neat company. Uh, Michael's a really unique character on the local cycling scene. Um, mm. Yeah, he's been, I don't know, he's like an institution in Ottawa. Like you. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's a, he's, a good, he's a good guy. He's got some really neat, uh, like his club Eurosports, lots of fun, really, really friendly people in the club. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he's got his own brand. But he also sells all sorts, all sorts of other really nice bikes too. Mm. Uh, I think called Nago, he carries... Uh, and some other bikes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there are all sorts of amazing bike so- bike shops in Ottawa too, right? Uh, yeah, but yeah, but so I've got a Norco. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I do see a lot of people with woven though, and like maybe yeah. just because it stands out, like you know, you once I you know of it, you yeah, you know, if you drive a a Volkswagen Golf, you always see the Volkswagen Golf. So it's like I don't exactly. have woven wheels, yeah. but once I learned of them, I I tend to notice them. Yeah, well, they've. I have two sets of woven wheels, one on my gravel bike and then one on my uh, fat bike. Um, and then the old specialized bike I have, um, the rims, or the, when I bought that bike, the, um, the guy I bought it from had it sitting in his garage for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the spokes and the spoke nipples got seized or corroded. Okay. So the first season I was riding it, the spokes kept breaking so i took it to the woven dudes because they're master wheel builders and they re- rebuilt the wheels for me okay so they've been solid since then mm-hmm. so woven's been good good for that um, yeah i love i love like i had a profile design carbon fiber rims on my road bike back in the day and you know over the eight or nine years i rode that bike i never had to tighten a single spoke wow I never, I never had a spoke break. I had, I still, I found the bladed spokes in my cupboard the other day, and I was like, oh, I should have gave those to the guy when he bought the bike, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's but funny. like, I'm thinking probably he didn't break a spoke anyways, you know? Like, probably not. Yeah, because um, those are really amazing. good wheels. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm really happy. With and and I think the guy's name is Brad, who's the wheel builder. 
at Woven. I could forgive me if I've gotten his name wrong, but he's a really, really solid you know, bike mechanic. Yeah, but but yeah, but, so I bought that Norco from Full Cycle, and most of the stuff I do is through Full Cycle only because uh, Jamie, who's the original founder of Full Cycle, he and I go back to when we were teenagers. Like I was 15 working at Sportable and he was like the mechanic on the other side of the stand. And like he was half a year or a year older than me. And we've just been really good friends ever yeah. since. So when he founded Full Cycle, I bought most of my bikes and most of my gear through Full Cycle. <laughs> sounds like there's a winter it storm like, going yeah, on around like, us. <laughs> I don't know what's happening out there. I don't want to go outside. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I love my, my fat bikes. And back to, actually, I didn't answer uh, fully. I'm, I'm also planning to do a few of the uh, fat bike events this winter. What events are there? I know of Wendigo. That's the only one I really well, know of. This December 4th, don't tell my doctor because he told me not to ride outside until February. It's like just it's just a little tiny bone that I broke in my finger. But the OBC one at uh, or the um, no, there's the Omba one at La Rose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. missed the registration. I'm just gonna go ride anyways because I mean it's public <laughs> land. So I'm just I, I don't know how it ride. works. I don't know if they're gonna control yeah. or whatever. But I'm gonna go do that one. Yeah. on December fourth, um, the Borka Trail folks. So it's the Beachburg Off Road Cycling Association. Yeah, yeah. They put on. I think it's called Borka Fat and Frosty. Okay, I don't know about that. Um, so they do a few. When is that? Well, I know I'll that like during like right before the pandemic, they had three or four. Then I think they had to like the last race they canceled because it was in the height of the very early days of the pandemic. Um, and I don't know if they've done more since then. But Cameron Dubé or Dube, he's the one I think who puts that on along with Jared and a few other folks. Um, Again, that's you have to drive to. It's yeah. like you know near Beechburg, Renfrew area. Then there's the Wendigo, and I've no, done I see the 2021 here, so I'll have to look it up later. Yeah, then I've done the the Wendigo 100, the Wendigo 50, and I'd like to do the, the 200? Wendigo 200 this year, but that's that's a long time on a fast. It's bike. like 20 hours plus. You it know? is, like, yeah, because yeah. it's. Because you like, can kind of average yourself at around 10K per hour, right? Maybe. You, you, you can. Like like when I did the 100K, I think the average was maybe 11 or 12K an hour. Okay. But it was so much faster. Like, like the, the, the trail that they use is shared with uh, snow machines or snowmobiles, whatever right. word you want to call it. So in the morning when they're all the sledders are sleeping in and having their coffee and their big you know breakfast, like the, the trail is frozen overnight. So the first five centimeters of the, the surface are rock hard. Uh-huh. So, so it's pretty fast. So it's pretty fast. Like I remember <clears throat> on the 100K route, it's 50K straight out. And then you turn around and you come back. And there was a hill that I was going up before any of the sleds came through. I was going up the hill at like 13K an hour thinking, oh, I can't wait to come back down this hill. I'm going to be going at like 16, 17K an hour. But two things happened. Like on the turnaround, um, like a blizzard started coming in and all the snow machines came in. So I was probably putting out twice as much power going down that hill and going 11 kilometers an hour going down the hill. Yeah. So it's just because what happens is that those snow machines come and the first five centimeters like surface of the snow becomes super, super soft. It's mm. like you're riding in sand. Okay. 
and it just slows you right down. Right. So, so but luckily on a 200K, probably by the time you get to that 10-hour mark, you're done 100K, the snowmobiles are done for the day because it's dark. And yeah. it's getting cold again, so it's crusting over. So probably you actually start to speed up again. I, I, I don't know. I'd have to ask some of the guys yeah, that did the 200K yeah. if that's what they experienced. Yeah, but. I can't decide what I'm going to do. I've um, I've got quite a few friends who are going to be doing the 50, you know, like Carl and Emily. Yeah, Carl and, and Emily. My buddy Jeff is going to come down from Toronto and do the 50. He's registered for 50. Another yeah. guy, Alex. Um, I know a lot of people doing the 50, so I'm like, I kind of want to do the social thing. But also, like my my natural tendency is to go to push yourself to death. <laughs> yeah. So that's just who I am. And I'm like, uh, can I really just do a 50 and be happy? Or will I just like be pissed off? I didn't do a hundred or a hundred, 200, you know? Yeah. So uh, yeah. we'll see. I'll decide before the uh, prices go up. Yeah. yeah. I haven't decided yet. I haven't even registered yet because I yeah, can't figure either. out if I'm going to do the 200 or it's the exactly 100. The same with me. Yeah. Um, just because I don't know yet. And I wanted to get some experience. So I'm pretty new yeah. to the fat bike. So I wanted to get some riding in and see how it goes. And it's, you'll um, love it. I mean, it's amazing riding a fat yeah, bike. And that, and that, and that, that bike is amazing. And that it's race just, is really fun. Like the, like the first year I did the Wendigo was February 2020, right as COVID was starting around the world. And yeah. It was like weeks before, weeks before nuts, the yeah. shutdown. Yeah. And that was, I think the very first sort of fat bike kind of long ride I did, it was super cold, like minus 23, minus 24. So I didn't drink enough. And I was, I think, I think I finished in under four hours. I think I was, oh, okay. I was like the first male finisher, but second place. Cause the woman who won it, Donna Winters, freaking fit, super, super fit. And I was on her wheel for a while um on the way back and then i crashed oh yeah yeah just i just went just a hit, little, a, hit a little rat or fell i just went a little bit too far to the left because we were on left hand side mm-hmm. i don't know why we we're on the left hand side it was strange we we're on left hand side because i think that's probably where the the snow was the hardest and i just went a little bit too over to the left right into the soft snow. right in the soft snow and i literally tumbled right mm-hmm. and she just kept going <laughs> and, and as i got up i cramped and I'm like, oh, this sucks. And I ended up finishing like 15 minutes after her or something like that. Um, and then I think then it became virtual for two years. Then okay. this year, Dave Belinke won the 50K. Yeah, so just to, I think I just said this, but yeah, David Belenke, who's, I don't know if you know him. I don't know him. I don't he, know much of the Ottawa community. Yeah, yeah. so he's, he's um, like this. I don't know, like this, another institution in cycling in, in Ottawa. Uh, super kind guy, uh, teaches people cyclocross skills. Uh, but yeah, he's he's just a really solid cyclist too. Um, he won the 50K. Okay. He's in his older, he's older too. He's, he's um, I think his mid to late 50s. Okay. Super strong guy. Do you know Rob Orange? Yeah, Rob Orange and I know each other okay. quite well. Do you ever go riding in his property? Uh I think once, yes, once yes, I did. Come up, come up, fat biking this winter. We'll go ride there. Yeah, if you, yeah, yeah. Although he, he I'm not keeps sure. it pretty on the low key. So, yeah, exactly yeah. right. So like no he, Strava, no no Strava. You know, if you ride in his property, <laughs> yeah, I, Rob's a good friend of mine. Okay. Yeah, a lot of the ride with Rendell kind of leadership folks are good friends of mine. 
um, Rob oh, and I. Huge. I didn't even know he was associated. Yeah, he yeah. is. He's uh, actually, if you look at the jerseys, I think either here or on the back, you got his name, uh, Robert Orange. Uh, he's a oh. he's a wealth advisor. Is he? I have yeah. no idea. I don't know. I've only met him cycling. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he's a uh, so through CIBC Wood Gundy. He's a okay. he's a financial planner, wealth advisor, oh, okay. really solid guy. Um, but yeah, he's he's also like he's a superstar cyclocross. Oh my god, guy. the guy's a beast. It's yeah. like a, like for for his age, I think he's almost sixty or just turned sixty. Actually, I missed his birthday party because I was with my daughter um, at a rowing event in southwestern Ontario. I felt terrible that I missed his birthday but at the same time you know it was amazing to be with my daughter at this event but yeah so he's another guy that's just like amazing but but you mentioned emily earlier emily won the woman's category for the 50k at the wendigo yeah and then there's um do you know cameron's wife jordan she's incredibly fit she's like a powerhouse she was pregnant and she won the 100k wendigo um, fat bike race. You know what's really interesting is when I lived in Malaysia, all like I'd say ninety percent or eighty percent of my rides were group rides. You know, I rode with people all the time. Yeah, um, deeply involved in the communities. And I came back to Canada, and I ended up selling my road bike because I found the roads are so shitty here. Yeah, well, uh, compared to like the money they spend in Asia, you know, they don't have winter, so the roads stay good exactly, forever. Yeah, and I sold my road bike. And got a gravel bike, and then I just ride on my own. I, I say ninety nine percent of the time I ride alone, so I've never really feel like I've broken into the local community, which is weird because it's so against what I am and who mm. I am. Yeah, it's um, it's it's odd. I mean, I, I do find like there there is a thriving community here, mm-hmm. but there it, it can be a little cliquey at times. Yeah, I found so. a few times where I did ride with people like groups. And it was very much like, you know, it just felt weird. Yeah. yeah, it's. But maybe it was coming from Southeast Asia, where you're like the white guy who stands out, and like, yeah. you know, people talk to you and they want to know who you are and stuff, and all of a sudden you're like just a normal dude. Yeah, <laughs> but like, I don't know. Like that's one of the things I noticed, like in France, like this uh, Longchamp thing that I would go to every Saturday and Sunday morning or throughout the week. They didn't care. I mean, if you were if you couldn't hold your line. And you cause crashes, they would push you, like, like just get, get out of here, right? Like, actually, literally, like push you on your hip, yeah, and say, like, get out of the pack, right? In French, um, that never happened to me. Um, mm-hmm. I always rode at the front in the first ten or fifteen positions, um, but they didn't really care as long as you're a smooth rider, could hold your line and 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 maintain the speed, you could ride with them. Um, whereas here, I think, you know, there's insurance to be. Like, you know, if like if one of the clubs is going out on a ride, um, you know, and somebody has a bad crash and like breaks their hip or something, who's liable for that, right? Yeah. It's like, it's- so I think there's a little bit of a litigious sort of concern in North America, more so in the USA than, than yeah, in we've, Canada. But but- even Canada has become a little bit of the Sioux culture. I yeah. Feel. Like to some degree, we've gotten that from the US. So I think there's a bit of that concern. And I do think it's legitimate. Like I've heard stories of clubs inviting people onto their rides and then somebody just like, you know, knocked wheels or crossed wheels or something and somebody went down really hard. So there are a couple of clubs that just want to like, hey, you know, it's it's just us because like I, I trust that guy's wheel or her wheel or something. 
Um, but this is why, uh, like Jamie Blades, not, not that I think Jamie Blades is anything negative about to say about the rest of the community. He's a super solid guy. He created Common Empire. And OBC is also very good for this too, the Auto Bicycle Club or the or Common Empire. And the whole point of Common Empire was to say, hey, I don't care what your background is, what kind of bike you have, what your his like what your history is. Um, you know, if you're a new immigrant to Canada, you can come ride with us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as part of riding with us, you have to um, like there's a ride leader and the ride leader will tell you how to ride. You have to listen to them. And we're going to have different speeds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then OBC also has a lot of this too. Like okay. you can register online for all of these auto bicycle club rides and go to the ride start and you can choose what speed you want to go into. Uh, okay. And um, one, of the, one of the requirements for a ride leader is to be able to like kind of manage the group a little bit, the speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they also have courses on how to ride in a group. Yeah, that's um, good. So it makes it a little bit easier, but you know, if you if you do want it, like like Common Empire is a good group to get part to become part of, just to do some club rides with them. Uh, same thing with Auto Bicycle Club. Mm-hmm. I think Ride with Rendell, they don't do a lot of club rides because um, unless you're in the mountain bike side of things with the kids, because there's a really cool um, and really well developed program for uh, youth and children mountain biking with Ride with Rendell. Um, but the elite riders, they all tend to ride like, like, you know, between like in, in the day, right. When most people are working. Okay. So like you, you see these like 200 kilometer rides they post like on a Tuesday afternoon because they've all met at eight and had coffees and ridden like, I don't know, like up to Cantley and up to yeah, yeah, yeah. low and then back down again to, to Ottawa. And they're, they're, they're great. They're great guys, but they're. They're just like, you know, it's not like an official club ride. They're just out riding together. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but Common Empire will have, and Bike and, Bike and Beer is another one you could probably get involved oh, yeah, with I've too. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them, yeah. Um, There's a guy times. named Mike Stenecker. Oh, geez, what are the other names of the guys in that club? They're a little bit everywhere too. There's a Bike they, and Beer in Toronto. They like, are, yeah. yeah. yeah, like yeah. Quite um, and, and I think they're a little bit more open to, this is more of a relaxed club. Some of the guys, even though they're older, they're still super strong. Yeah. Like really, really strong riders. Uh, but solid people and like it's just mm-hmm. like it's they always regroup at the top of a hill or something like that. So they're like they'll hammer you on the hill and then regroup and have a nice chat. Yeah. Uh, and then they'll always meet for a beer somewhere afterwards. <laughs> yeah. After we bought the house here in Chelsea, it's starting to make me think it's time to get a road bike again, but we'll see. I don't know. Well, Let's you're see. so close to Gatineau Park. Like you talk about good roads because the Gatineau Park yeah. is closed in the winter when the snow melts, you don't have the trucks, everything going over it. Right. So the roads stay in really good shape. Yeah. Yeah. No, Gatineau Park is awesome. Yeah. It's, it's such a, we're so privileged to have this so close to the city. And I mean, for me, it's 500 meters to Brazilian where I ride my bike, my mountain bike a lot, you know, yeah, so I take the that's dog. a great trail. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of my big pet thieves recently is I've realized that all of the snowshoe and fat biking trails are no dogs in the winter. Oh. And it doesn't make sense to me why you would not be allowed to bring a dog on a trail in the winter. But you can in the summer. But you can on those trails in the summer. And I was trying to think of this. I'm like, man, I got to reach out to NCC and see why. Why is this a thing? Because 
actually in the winter, if you're walking your dog, everybody's going slower because you're in snowshoes or yeah. on a fat bike. You're much slower than you would be on those trails on a mountain bike in the summer. So I, yeah, I'll look to that in a minute. But, but um, so my thought is, I mean, if you have a dog and it's supposed to be leashed anyways, I don't see it as an issue. I don't, yeah. I don't see how that is an issue. You know, what? I, I agree with you. And I don't, I don't care. I take my dog on Brazilian all the time because that's my local dog walking trail. You know, it's an AK yeah. loop from here. That's what we rock summer, winter, whatever, whether it's yeah. bike or walking or running. I don't or, know what the rationale would be behind that. You know, it doesn't make sense to be honest with you because like in the summer, I see dogs all the time. Sure. And in the winter, too, people are walking their dogs. I think they just don't give a shit. But it's like the downside of the whole thing is potentially you're at risk of a fine. Yeah. But everybody's doing it anyways because clearly nobody yeah. agrees with this policy. But I, I do think the one thing that's important, though, is to at least make sure your dog is on a leash. Yeah. Because right? yeah. like if you've got something coming through quickly running or riding or whatever, mm-hmm. Like if I see a dog that's like on a leash, it, it's worrisome. Yeah, yeah. Like I usually just stop, right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I don't know if the dog's gonna chase me and bite me, or you know, yeah, try to get in between my spokes. Like I remember on the prison trails, there was a guy walking two dogs, and I came up to uh, to him. Well, not to the guy, but to the where we were in the trail where the two dogs were, and I just stopped, uh, just stopped my bike, put my foot down. And the dogs calmed down and the dogs just kept walking because they weren't on a leash. So I, and they're really cute dogs, like beautiful dogs. And like last thing I want to do is hit the dogs, Mm -hmm. right? I would have felt terrible hitting the dogs. So I just, because they were all yapping and barking at me and everything because, so I just stopped. (laughs) Yeah. Well, while we're talking about breaking rules, yeah. So Indigo, my dog is a, is a herder. So cattle dog. (laughs) And her instinct is to, bite tires of bikes if somebody's running past her her instinct is to turn around and bite their heel because <laughs> that's what <laughs> cattle dogs do um so i'm always really careful but when i for example on brazilian going i don't go down the steep part i usually go up that part and i go down the switchbacky side um she likes to run behind me she, mm. she follows so i usually let her hook unhook unleash her and i go but then my you know Almost all my focus is on further up the trail if I see a person. You know? yeah. As soon as I see somebody, I stop. She comes beside me. I leash her. Yeah. And then we go because, you know, she likes to run. and I like to ride fast too. And if she's on the leash, she can't really do that because what if she goes on the wrong side of a tree, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Then, um, <laughs> then so it would be a dead dog. It would be a dead dog. and Yeah. I did yeah. it once to her accidentally. And luckily, I wasn't going too fast. Um, she was not happy. Oh, that um, would be good. Yeah. So yeah, but I mean, she's good if she's behind me, but like I don't ever let her get to the point where she's in front of me. Yeah. So because then yeah. she's leading and she's in control. But, right. Yeah. But I mean, it is against the rules and potentially could lead to issues. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but I do it anyways. So <laughs> <laughs> there you are. On uh, yeah, you heard, it on you heard it. You heard it. Yeah. Um. But but one of the things you mentioned earlier about speeds, like. There are days, though, when the snow will be so compact and so hard and so fast that you right. will ride faster on Brazilian on that bike. Yeah, because there's no bumps to navigate, yeah, right? All, all the technical stuff is yeah. underneath. So it's almost like you're riding on this, I don't know what the best comparison is, but it's like this dedicated raised smooth mm-hmm. track 
that all the technical stuff is buried underneath the snow and you could just go super fast. Mm -hmm. Um, But on that same note, they they would be coming down the steep section and I would be going up the other way, which I would have the dog leashed. Right. And I would move off the trail. And like, I'm always careful. You know, I move to the side. If she's on my right side, I move to the right of the path and I block her out. Yeah. I don't think that's the reason that they have no dogs. I just don't know why they have no dogs. Yeah, me either. Because come to think of it, like, a lot of my friends go cross-country skiing in the Gatineau Park all the time with their dogs. Do they? Yeah. yeah. Just on not on the groomed trails. On Maybe the, not on the, on the groomed on trails, the, though. Maybe that's... What do they call them? The ungroomed trails, I guess. Yeah, because yeah, they've got the like the backcountry ski mm-hmm. trails. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, because I think you're allowed on the non-machine groomed trails, the ones that are man-packed and stuff, you're allowed... I think there's nothing stopping you from bringing your dog. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I... As long as a dog isn't attacking me, I'm usually pretty good about like you know. And yeah. I, I don't know some some cyclists, not many that I know, but I, you hear these tales, right? Of like, why are they going so fast? Like all these kids are around, or they're hikers. Like you know, the minute I'm like riding my bike in the Gatineau Park on a mountain bike trail, and I come across either cyclists coming my way or a runner or family. Mm-hmm. I just stop. Like, like you know, there are these rules. I keep forgetting what the rules are. If you're going uphill. Technically, like, going uphill is the right away, which yeah. sometimes seems kind of backwards because if it's a steeper downhill, yeah, you're going uphill, you have the right away. But if that person's coming down and they're already on their way down the hill too, like, yeah. you might want to move out of the way because <laughs> they might not Momentum. have the, yeah. the, the, speed, the, the distance to stop safely if all yeah. of a sudden they realize, oh, you're not going to move. I know. I think that. I think you're. I think but a lot you're of right. this eye contact, communication. Yeah. You know, like yeah. If I see a person, I'm coming down a hill, and I see them step off the trail. Well, I know they're giving me access, so I exactly, go. Exactly. Yeah. If they don't step off the trail, I'm slowing down to give them that that yeah. privilege, and I move off to a safe spot, or right. I fi- I slow down at a spot where I know we can pass each other. You know. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I I agree. That makes sense. Um, I I I just I'm wired that the minute I see somebody coming the other way, I immediately try to get out mm-hmm. of their direction. Or out of their way. Right? Yeah. Just because I want to. Yeah. One thing I find though is there's so much, even within the Chelsea community, like like when I see the things, there's so much negativity and this like, the sense of like others against cyclists, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I make it a personal mission. I, I'm, I pretty much talk to people all the time. I'm, I'm pretty much like this podcaster is the <laughs> same person you see on the trail. Yeah. If I'm going down the community trail in Chelsea, I see somebody with a dog. I'm saying hi. I give them warning before I get there. I might even stop and pet their dog because, like, really, is my ride like what am I? Am I gonna break a PR? Like, no. Like, I, I <laughs> yeah. just you know, yeah. I say hi to people. I pet their dogs. I talk to them. I try to make it so that people realize not all cyclists are assholes. When very few of us are, you know. Yeah. Um. So just try to reinforce those that that's a different stereotype, right? And that yeah. way people go home and go, oh yeah, that guy was nice. Yeah. Bicycles, bicyclists aren't all dickheads, you know? No, like, they're not. That's the, yeah. that's the hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's good, right? I think as cyclists, we should always be trying to, I don't know, um, show good community, good, good karma, right? I was actually talking to Rob Orange earlier last week, just about karma. It's like, I'm all about like, you know what, you know, 
you know, I've lived long enough to know that, you know, some, I've done some stupid stuff and <laughs> the stupid stuff has come back to bite me. So I was like, oh, you know what? You know, learn from that, become wiser as they get older. So now I'm all about just like, you know, it's about karma. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, yeah, I don't like petty, gossipy talk. It just doesn't feel right anymore. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, but you hear all the time these stories of oh, this cyclist did that or this cyclist did this. And you know what? I don't really care. You know, I just, I, you know, just, just try to be kind to everyone, yeah. wave at everyone. If they're, if they got a mechanical, try to help out. Like if you see a, a pedestrian on a path, you know, they get out of the way, say, thank you so much and have exactly. a great day. And, yeah. You know, or ask them how their hike is. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Just like, just cause to be honest with you, like, like there's so much stress like at home, at work, kids, you know, negotiations on time, uh, you know, financial stresses, all the crap going on in the world. But like when I'm on my bike, it's like, it's that moment where I just want to have fun. I don't want to have any like politics Mm -hmm. or any negativity. It's just. And somebody's saying hi to you or, Hey, what's up? How are you doing? How are you having a good ride? Yeah. It makes it better. It does. It does. Right. Cause, cause to me, cycling is an escape from a lot of the chaos going on in the world. And, even chaos at home. I mean, I, I love my kids, love my daughters, love my wife, but you know, every so often I just need to go like, <laughs> my wife's like, you need to go ride your bike. You're becoming unreasonable. Like get out of yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, my yeah. wife will start saying, stop nagging. I'm like, I need to go ride my bike. She's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, so it's, and it's just, it's such a good relief and I just feel so much better in my self-confidence and self-esteem and everything else just means that when I get back home, I just, I feel so much more, refreshed and able to contribute because whatever it is that I don't know sometimes what it is I'm angry about something I don't mm-hmm. know why right it could be some childhood shit or something that happened yeah. at work or I don't like what somebody said but you know it's my ego's being bruised but you know what who cares about my ego because I'm just some dude <laughs> like you know yeah. nobody cares it's like just go ride my bike and work it out and then come back home and be a good dad again right yeah exactly yeah. That's funny. You know, we hit two hours. I know. <laughs> That's a long time. This might be the second longest episode I've ever done. <laughs> I told you I could talk. <laughs> yeah. Do we have anything else we want to talk about? I think we've kind of covered it all. It's like Gene Villeneuve and all things bikes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and some more. <laughs> yeah. No, this has been great. It's really um, good to get to, well, you know, I, you know, you've been asking me a lot of questions. I've been talking a lot too, but I feel like, like I said at the beginning, right? There's so much I already know about you yeah. from listening to your Little podcast. Little bits and bobs yeah. here and there. That's right. But one thing I want to know is that you must speak other languages than English and French. English, you... French. I speak Russian. Russian, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, not great anymore, but pretty well. Yeah. Um, enough to, to talk with students and their parents and stuff. And um, yeah, so I speak Russian. That must uh, my, have... my heritage is Ukrainian, but... Oh, that yeah. was a hundred years ago they came to Canada. So uh, I'm the closest. The, I'm the only person in our family that speaks anything remotely close to Ukrainian. Right. Because I lived in Russia three years. Yeah. Wow. Um, I speak a little bit of Korean, just some broken pieces and bits and bobs. I remember um, a decent amount of Malay in terms of like numbers, directions, right. um, just day to day, like basic talk. Um, little bits of Japanese. I was doing pretty well, but then things got complicated with that uh, whole scenario. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of it. 
Yeah. yeah, and I'm learning a little bit of Persian slowly and steadily. Yeah, through, yeah, through your wife, wife yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I understand a lot more than I can say. Like, they'll talk and say stuff, and I'll start answering questions. They're like, whoa, how <laughs> did you understand that? I'm like, well, you said this word, you said that word, and then you added Chris. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so my yeah. ears are like, Chris, blah, 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 blah. All right, open up. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, that's, that's what's fascinating with these international kind of connections and experiences, mm-hmm. right, that you pick up different things. Yeah. Yeah. But we should go for a ride one day. You should tell me all about your time in Russia. I'd love to hear more about that. Cause yeah, because those stories are best not told on air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, those are like yeah, good tales to, to tell on a, on a fat bike. Together. All right, well, I'm going to turn off this recording. You don't have to hang up. That's what I always say. But uh, actually, you don't have anything to hang up. So <laughs> okay. um, good talking to you, Gene, and uh, keep on pedaling. Thank you, Chris. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning into this episode. And uh, to Gene particularly for sharing your story and coming over and hanging out in my garage for a few hours, even though it slowly got cold because I had the heaters off and the the wood stove died. So thanks for that, Gene. I do look forward to getting out with you on the bikes more this year. Um, fat bike season is officially happening. So let's make this happen. And um, yeah, to anybody out there, if you have any comments, questions and stuff, please reach out. Otherwise, keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.